Blog Talk Radio. It's that time. We have the people. This is Eric from Moana. This is Priscilla Lima. This is Casey Patterson. The story in real time. We're a much better team now than we were then. I'm not looking at just this year, I'm looking at the next four years. You're listening to The Netline with Barney. You didn't win, so you must not have done a good job. And DJ Ruche. I have great thighs. It's The Net Live right now. That comment never gets any better, Jeremy. I'm sorry. Every time you hear it, oh, you're just like, God, oh, did I really say that out loud? What was I doing? Welcome to the Net Live, ladies and gentlemen. It is the 3rd of February, 2014. You're part of year six right now of the Net Live. And I just want to say right off the top, I'm so happy that Texas Troll defeated our firewall that we put in front of him. <laughs> and he's back in the chat board. Welcome back, Texas Troll. And welcome everyone who's listening, whether it be iTunes or Right now live, if you're one of these six people who listen to us live and enjoy the chat board, welcome. Uh, we have a, there's eight in there right now, Kevin. <laughs> right on. Maybe we'll don't, get don't to 20 by midway. Yeah, don't sell them short. Uh, we have a great show planned for you today. We'll have College Volleyball Weekly, as usual, with Rob on the mic as well as Jay Hasek. Always look forward to those guys. Maybe What's Jay going to do this week? Is he going to ring a bell again? Is he going to have... Uh, well, he obviously has an injured ankle. So mariachi music. He terminated Rob last week, so he definitely has an injured ankle this week. So we'll have an update on the men's side of the game, which is still happening, and we are pleased to have in studio for the entire broadcast, because he can't go home until traffic <laughs> is finished, it's Tom Fuhrer, longtime uh, television executive, just finished his run at Fox Sports West just a few days ago, executive producer there, and a man who's been in the TV game since 1985. Welcome, Tom. It's good to be here. Thank you. And those that don't know, Tom Fuhrer is a font of volleyball knowledge <laughs> as well. I'll be talking to Tom, and he just assumes that I know somebody that he mentions from 1991, and I don't know who it was. I was like 16 years old. Why don't you know everybody, Kevin? I'm sorry. I am ashamed. <laughs> I wish I was 16 and 19. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going to have a lot of fun talking to Tom about the sport of volleyball, being on TV. Obviously, Tom, having started with Prime Ticket back in 1985, as, as we were just talking with him off air, inside the Forum Building, where Team Cup was being held back then, but he's seen... Uh, a run of volleyball, the rise, the fall, the return, the again fall, yeah. the return, rinse and the again. Rinse and repeat. <laughs> and fall. So um, he's seen so much of volleyball history. This is going to be a lot of fun to have Tom here and, and to talk about that. So we're going to spend the majority of our time talking with Tom about uh, TV and, and the sport of volleyball. Can't wait. Because I wonder, what can we do to the sport of volleyball to make it more appealing on television? I was talking with somebody yesterday trying to explain volleyball on TV and why basketball does better and why basketball has a better flow. And I got onto the international game and the paddles, oh, the substitute paddles. <laughs> if I was commissioner, if I was FIVB president for one day, all it would take is one day, I would issue an executive order, Obama that's all, style. That's all they would allow you to be, by <laughs> okay. the way, one day. That's all I need. Yeah. Executive order, those paddles are done. We are finished with this, this cross motion. The referee comes away from the pole. And he does this. Yeah. Well, nobody can see that except for us. Well, wondering. people know. People know. The hands, the crossing of hands. Gotcha. Oh, you, you guys. Okay, everyone all right? Everyone's the crowd seat. This is 15 for 14. Okay, go. So it's for those people keeping track at home on their you know, baseball games where they guys have the sheets and they write it down. 
Yeah. I'm sure all the volleyball fans are in the stands keeping track of who's subbing in and who's subbing out. I've never understood why you can't report to the scorer's table like the NBA does. Tell the scorer's table what's happening. I'm going in for that Walk guy. in on the next dead ball. Tell your guy to get out. Walk in on the next dead ball. Why do we have to stand there and the down referee looks at the scorer's table? Did the scorer's table not write it down earlier? So we don't have that issue in beach. You don't have substitutes in beach. That's what I'm saying. But what if you did? That would be funny. What if it was a three-man team and you had subs? That would actually be really That'd be a funny. fun tournament, wouldn't it? We should play that tournament. Okay. Three-man sub, subs. Sure, why not? Why not? Do you keep a guy fresh all day? What do you do? You just let Phil rest till the finals? <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you're getting at? Phil's on your team? You yeah. already drafted Phil's him? Phil's for sure on my team. Fantastic. And I can be the sub, and I'll just hang out in the smart car all day long. You could be the sub, yes, because the scud to the water is not needed at any point during the day. Nope. And Phil can stay on the left. High, spatchy, Phil can stay on the left because the break. shot from the right is great. <laughs> so we're fine. <laughs> Tom, you still play? I do, but at a somewhat lower level. <laughs> <laughs> Although I do look like Dalhauser. I was going to say, you guys have the same haircut. You're fine. Yeah, Phil, you got uh, Phil Dalhauser, Billy Corrigan, and Tom Fuhrer all lined up together. That's pretty Figure good. Out who's that's, who. a, that's a good circle to be confused in. I'm down with that. Yeah, and actually last year in that tournament we were talking about in Long Beach, I finally got a picture with myself and Phil together. <laughs> but my favorite Phil Tom Fuhrer story is um, I was in Hawaii for one of the AVP postseason events, and Kevin Wong's mother came up to me and she said, you know, we never see any of Phil's relatives at any of the games. So it's just assuming that I was uh, oh, his brother. Great. So uh, I, oh, I tell Kevin that story uh, a few times, too. But, uh, uh, and then one time, uh, Chris Marlowe on the air said, uh, Phil Dalhauser, the doppelganger for Tom Fewer. <laughs> Nobody knew who Tom Fewer was. Some people inside the volleyball world got a good chuckle out of that one. Yes, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. We never see Phil's family at the games. That's hilarious. Well, if you don't know who Tom Fuhrer is, here's, here's who you're listening to. Tom Fuhrer began 1985 with Prime Ticket as Director of Communications. Then he went on to work for ESPN, TNT, TBS, Nike. Now, Director of Television, I want to talk to you about that one. Uh, Kyoka Sports, and I've got to figure out, am I Quaka. saying Quaka Sports. Yeah. All right, we've got to talk about that one. MSNBC, NBC, Fox Sports Northwest, and Fox Sports West. And now on the net live. And now the net live. I mean, That's your new career. You're yeah. in. You just you just <laughs> left uh, Fox Sports West last week, and now you're here. Perfect. So we'll see you next Monday as well. I'm sure it's, <laughs> a, I'm sure it's the same pay grade. We'd have to do it from Stanford, Connecticut, if we did it Ooh. next Monday. That's right. You will be headed to work on the Olympic Games. Correct. Nice. What are you working on? Because people that don't know, some of the sports for the Olympics are on-site, volleyball being one of them in the summer games, but a lot of sports, weightlifting, uh, I think some wrestling and others in the summer games are actually broadcast from a, a site either at NBC uh, 30 Rock, which is, I think, where the summer games were based out of. But now you have a Stanford location for the winter games. What sports are you working on? Well, I think I'll be working on most every one of them. I'm the overnight guy. So okay. uh, from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. Uh, Eastern time, which is uh, prime time in Sochi, mm-hmm. I'm kind of responsible for... Uh, keeping tabs on everything and making sure that everything is going okay. I'm also the guy that if uh, anything uh, goes wrong, that they can call because I'll be the only one there. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just you in a box with a whole bunch of buttons and television. Uh, yeah, yeah. Me and an EVS operator, and I think that's about it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It'll be a solitary confinement. <laughs> now, when did the game start? Because I haven't... This I haven't week, I think. It. Is it this week? They do. In fact, uh, day one 
is uh, Wednesday our time and Thursday Sochi time before the opening ceremonies, which are mm. Friday Sochi time. Oh, okay. So, so they're going to have some events before the opening ceremony correct. starts. I think soccer does that typically with the summer games. They do. They do. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that'll be interesting. I, I'm looking forward to tuning in to the Winter Games. My kids love the Olympic Games. They get way into it. And maybe it's just because they get to watch like two hours of TV a night. But <laughs> Your kids and I have a lot in common. <laughs> <laughs> no, they get, they get very excited about it. So t- take me back a ways here into, into Nike Director of Television. Tell me about that initiative with Nike. Do they, do they even have such a thing anymore? Or? They don't have anything like that anymore. And, the, and, and I would say one of the great highlights of my life was uh, in that role, we put on the 1997 uh, World Championships of Beach Volleyball, which were at UCLA, and they were the first ever World Championships. And so Leonard Armato's uh, Management Plus and uh, myself at Nike, uh, we were the co-promoters, and we had to get the WPVA, the Women's uh, Association mm-hmm. at the time, the AVP, the FIVB, and then the Bud Light four-person circuits, four-man, four-woman, all together together. Uh, which we were able to do. Did you do this in like Davos, Switzerland, or something? It sounds like, or, or did you fly out to like Reykjavik? It sounds like Gorbachev and Reagan meeting. Yeah. Well, and actually, I got written up at Sports Illustrated for my diplomatic skills. There you go. Uh, nice. uh, but um, we did have to go to, out to Lausanne, and uh, I think uh, Sinjin Smith and Leonard Armato can tell a couple pretty good stories about how the place was bugged and everything like that. <laughs> but what was really thrilling was. Um, sitting there after all the hard work and watching Kent Steffes and Dane Blanton play the Diekman brothers. And you really got a sense at that point in time that beach volleyball was truly uh, becoming more of an international e- event. And not just international in the sense of uh, the U.S. and the Brazilians, but the Lassica brothers from Switzerland hmm. were playing. Uh, as I mentioned, the Diekman brothers from Germany were playing. And, um, you know, you got a sense that uh, a great, feeling of satisfaction that this was truly becoming a global game. Yeah, that's uh, when the FIVB and the AVP were still not getting along terribly well. They were not. Jerry Solomon, and that takes us back to the Winter Olympics, Jerry Solomon's the husband of Nancy Kerrigan and also her agent. Mm-hmm. 20 years ago uh, this week was the Winter Olympic Games in Lillehammer, and I was there for that, but that was the Kerrigan-Tanya Harding. Right. And it was a good 30 for 30 on a couple weeks it, ago. Very good, and, and that was the highest rated Winter Olympics in history during that, during that time period. Anyway, Jerry Solomon was a somewhat difficult guy to uh, work with and get along for the FIVB and uh, Ruben Acosta and Melu Acosta. And so it was really a difficult road to hoe to get, um, get uh, those two on the same page. Whereas Dave Willi- the late, great Dave Williams was the head of the WPVA at that time mm-hmm. and we had no problems. And then Craig Elledge was head of Bud Light the four-person circuits, and he was, he was easy to deal with. It was more just the Jerry Solomon, Ruben Acosta, Angelo Squayo part hmm. of the deal. What was Nike doing at that point? Why, were they, why did they have a television division? I think of Red Bull today right. trying to go from being a soft drink company to being a production house, basically. What was Nike doing at that time? Why did, were they in-housing some of their television stuff? There were two reasons for it. One was they had just signed a massive deal with the Brazilian soccer team. And as a part of that deal, they were in charge of putting on 10 friendlies, 10 exhibitions. 
um, and which were very hard to schedule because everybody's, uh, at, you know, I, I traveled with the Brazilian soccer team is like traveling with uh, the Beatles, mm-hmm. you know, and it's hard. They're each kind of their own brand and it's hard to get everybody uh, to be able to play as you know, leading uh, soccer players from that country to put them all together during one period of time. That was one reason. The second reason was that in Asia, uh, Nike was going through the roof but they were looked upon as a fashion brand and not an authentic sport brand. Hmm. So we brought over Michael Jordan to Japan. We brought over Charles Barkley and Char- uh, Jason Kidd, a kind, of, kind of a Hoops Heroes uh, endeavor to Japan. So it was mainly those two uh, reasons. And then when the Asian economic crisis happened in 1997, that really caused Nike's business to basically go from about a billion dollars in Asia to about $300 million. And with that, that began the demise of Nike Sports Entertainment because they just didn't have the stomach for that. There was also Nike Sports Management, and they represented Jason Kidd, among other people. Mm -hmm. Tradima Usri was head of that, Mm -hmm. and he's now the president of the Dallas Mavericks and has been for the last, I don't know, 13 or 14 years. So they had ventured out into these uh, subsidiary areas to really take advantage of these large uh, sports marketing contracts that they were doing with athletes and with uh, teams like Brazil sort of leverage them a little bit more. Yeah, it sounds like a synergy type thing, almost like a Disney approach to media. Exactly. I mean, they wanted to be able, okay, we're spending all this money. Uh, Why don't we get involved in media? Why don't we get involved in athlete representation? We're the biggest sports brand in the world. We should be able to do this. But they found that once they got away from their core, that they were very uncomfortable. The culture of the place just didn't support um, getting away from footwear and apparel and to a lesser degree equipment. Why is Nike no longer really involved with volleyball? We don't see them. There was a big push back when I joined the national team in 97. They were sponsoring the women's program. The men's team, we lost CAPA at that time. CAPA went out of business and whatever kind of business they were in shallowly at the time. A couple years later, they were out and we bought Nike stuff that we played with in the 98 World Championships. Why, why do you think Nike is not terribly involved in the volleyball scene? It's interesting. When I was at Nike, people would say... Um, wow, they should sponsor us, they should sponsor this, they should sponsor yeah. that. But the issue really is, what's in it for them? Just because it's a, it's, a, it's a great event to be associated with, they're not interested in association. They're interested in how is this going to drive revenue? How is this going to drive footwear and apparel sales? And so clearly the, uh, they didn't think that by sponsoring volleyball that there was an analogous relationship yeah. to footwear and apparel sales. Now, there's a ton of girls' volleyball players out there, um, but maybe they just didn't feel like um, there, there was really a, a real uh, marketing push and a real uh, footwear uh, business there. Yeah, Nike Europe was far more active at the time I played in Europe in the late 90s. They the Italian had, national team, I believe, they had at one time. Yeah, and they had a lot of the professional leagues and stuff would wear Nike. There was a, a lot of action going on there. I'm not sure what that looks like today if some of the other brands have taken over, but at the time, Nike Europe was, it must have been producing some sort of return on investment for Nike, being involved with those leagues. They're very shrewd over there, Kevin and, and Jeremy, and I, I think that um, a lot of people want to have the association with Nike, but Nike's only going to have an association if it furthers the brand or if it relates specifically to any kind of uh, economic uh, incentive for them. Well, I would assume some of it comes back to what we talk about on the show, like what is volleyball selling Right. That would help any any sponsor for that matter. It's like what product are they selling? Like there's nothing, especially on the beach. You're not wearing shoes out there. 
Right. You know, you could wear Nike sandals, but is that really what Nike wants to push? I've worn shoes on the beach. No. But I'm from the Midwest. That's, you have issues. Actually, when I worked at, at Nike, uh, uh, Tinker Hatfield, who created the Air Jordan shoes mm-hmm. and, and, and actually was listed amongst uh, Time Magazine at the turn of the century, 50 most innovative people of the last century, he had created a, uh, a, a sand volleyball shoe. Interesting. That uh, I actually uh, road tested, so to speak, but was created for Gabrielle Reese. Mm-hmm. And um, but it never really caught on uh, as a product. Um, and the apparel situation. I mean, when I first was following uh, beach beach volleyball, you had side out, you had offshore, you had op, uh, you had so many different brands. Everything from primitive, primitive prints. prints, yeah, <laughs> which I still have a couple pairs. That's nice. just uh, just a great Scott Akatubi uh, and and the primitive prints. Uh, but there were a lot more companies and board. That wouldn't even call it volleyball shorts. Yeah. Were much bigger than they are today, where it's just board shorts for the most part. Yeah, you don't even necessarily think of a specific brand for board shorts. You just say board shorts. No. I, when I think of volleyball brands, I think autonomous. Yeah. Are they even around right now? I don't know. We'll have to have call Aaron. CEO of GoPro spent an entire 60 minutes wearing an autonomous shirt. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Aaron, we sent him the picture. We did. Walk Fogel, did we get any response? Like, hey, no, that's cool. I had to send it through Geeter, so who knows what happened. Oh, <laughs> there it goes. <laughs> no, I, and people often hearken back to those times of volleyball apparel, and that volleyball apparel actually had some traction in the mainstream, but that seems to have been completely drawn up by surfing, and the surf apparel industry took over that entire, if, if it's beach, it's surfwear, basically. It's not anything else. It's as though nothing else happens on the beach. And Quicksilver was huge. Um, back when I first started playing around 1974-75, that was when Quicksilver just started uh, uh, making shorts, and you had Steve Obradovich that must have had 5,000 pairs of Quicksilvers <laughs> in his house because he wore a different pair every time. And you had Jim Mangus and, and a lot of other guys that were wearing Quicksilver, and that helped to grow the company. And um, to a degree, you kind of wonder, hmm, why don't they give back a little yeah. bit and and at least sponsor some athletes. It shouldn't have to be Red Bull that's that's one of the biggest uh, promoters in beach volleyball these days. But And it's funny, the CEO of Quicksilver is Andy Mooney, who uh, worked at Nike when I was there. Uh, and it's, it's going to be interesting to see what he does uh, with that brand because it's gone through some very, very difficult yep. times. And uh, the stock is way down. As a shareholder, I'm very disappointed. It has been down almost since 2001. Mm-hmm. So uh, hopefully Andy will turn it around, and hopefully uh, maybe Quicksilver will become involved more. Now with Brian Lewis no longer there, yeah. uh, I'm concerned that there's no uh, – uh, and, and McKnight not there, Robert McKnight not, uh, not there. I'm concerned that there's nobody to advocate for beach volleyball. Where did Brian Lewis go? He went to a financial firm, F&F, I think, financial. Hmm. Yeah, he's a vice president there. I remember wearing OP corduroy shorts as course. a kid growing up. Of course you did. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's interesting to see what these big companies do with different sports. Nike, for the last few years, has put in goodness knows how much, millions of dollars into motocross boots. Never once produced them. Never once made them. People said they don't have any plans on making them. They had the whole Nike 6.0 push into the extreme sports, which I think near as I can now. tell is gone. And that was surfing, moto, it was like skate, skate snow, moto. Mm-hmm. And that's all gone. And it must just not have been producing revenue, but it appears, at least from the participation of energy drink companies, 
that it's still selling energy drinks because that's the money that drives that scene to a large extent. I think Nike is, uh, for young people, seen as a mainstream brand, and, and on some of these more extreme sports, they don't want mainstream brands. Nike is... They want an Etnies or a... Right. Uh, what's the... Oh, it jumped out of my head. The one that's grown exponentially. I know the the guy, the venture capitalist who just bought it. That was the happy face. I'll think of it. Sorry, Tom. Nike Nike is the brand of your Good parents. Radio. You know, Nike's yeah. the brand of your parents mm-hmm. and not of of young people. Now, I'm very happy with Kevin Wolf, who um, is the CEO of Asics now, and I always call Kevin the the uh, father of beach volleyball because um, he uh, really started the Miller Lite Pro Beach Volleyball Tour. Mm-hmm back in the late 80s, and that caused the sport to mushroom just beyond California, and, uh, northern and southern California, northern to Santa Cruz, southern to uh, San Diego. And I always say that Kevin's the father of beach volleyball because under his stewardship at Miller Lite, the, uh, the sport really expanded such that you were having 23 or 24 events in a year, sometimes two in one weekend. Uh, and now he's at ASICS, and they were the title sponsor of Leonard Armato's event down in Long Beach. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of funny how things come full circle because Leonard was commissioner of the AVP, then left to be an agent, then came back to the AVP, then left, and now is uh, running this uh, tournament in Long Beach. And I think the one thing that draws all of us in is our love for the sport. Uh, now if we could just get a lot more people to love it like we yeah, do, no then doubt. we would be in great shape. Neff brand. Neff, yeah. Neff. It's a company that in the last six years went from not existing. You were looking at it up while we were talking. No, I didn't have to touch the computer, buddy. Just at random access memory up top here. Uh, it's gone from nothing to $90 million in sales. And you have to yep. be careful, too, because Massimo was another beach volleyball brand. Yep. So, you know, we, we brought up uh, Offshore and, and OP, and, and but Massimo and Quicksilver, all these uh, um, were were brands, but if you're red uh, sand, red sand. If you're a fashion brand, you're in big trouble, and that's why Nike really wanted to make sure they're authentic sport, because a fashion brand will go in and out of fashion, and and the trouble with that is you don't know how to manage your inventory because you have no idea uh, if you're going to be the today's story or yesterday's news. Yeah, sporting goods, if you're the performance brand, are a consumable quantity. The fashion is purely a a selective thing. It's it's like food. Versus clothes, in, in not not in that perfect of terms, but close to that. You have to have food. You don't have to have new clothes. Correct. So as soon as everything tanks, well, they're still making money at the grocery store, but they're not making money in the retail clothing business. I, I wonder with Miller Lite, and you bring that up, and we've talked about this on the show before, Miller Lite adopted beach volleyball as their summer identity. That was their advertising all summer long, and that was the, the image they wanted to portray to their consumers. Does it take a brand to do that with beach volleyball? Does it take the, the need for that? Because you're not necessarily, as we talked about earlier, going to get an exact ROI on things. You're not going to get a return on, hey, we sponsored beach volleyball. We sold X units of, of this particular product because we were at the AVP events or because we were at Leonard Armato's event. Does it have to be more of an identity thing and a, a branding issue, not necessarily a trackable commodity. They call it lifestyle. Uh, and yes, the problem with beach volleyball is that the demos are actually older than, than you would think. And mm. it's not an extreme sport. An extreme sport has demos that are much younger. But the beach volleyball demo is like 35 to 54. Yep. And if you go to any beach volleyball tournament, you're seeing a lot of 35 to 54. I think that's accurate. Now, 
what does need to happen is is somebody who has um, almost a personal connection to the sport. I, I go with, with what's going on in Russia, where the guy that runs the the indoor Russian circuit, and I know you've had Reed Pretty, you know, as a part of this show, but. These guys are getting seven-figure contracts because the guy in Russia that's running the show wears a Karch Karai pink hat all the time. That's because he is – look, is that a business out in Russia? Hell no. But he is somebody who is passionate about the sport, and that's oftentimes it has to be a lost leader. It yeah. has to be somebody that, that really has a passion for the sport or has a vision for the sport. Um, and, and, of course, uh, the whole jumbled soup – of beach volleyball out there's a huge problem yeah if you had one circuit that um uh that was uh, ev- you know everywhere and, and kind of took advantage of some of the events like the seaside oregon event the mother load and right in in boulder and 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 had their professional tournaments on top of those mass uh event uh tournaments then i think you would be on to something who should be number one in your mind here in the united states of all the competing entities or should the fiv be step in and be number one that's a good question um the avp certainly has the brand name okay and it really doesn't matter to me who it is i think uh i really like albert hanneman and what he's tried to accomplish uh he's a great guy um but there does there does need to be one i mean think about it there's no competition the nba to the nfl correct to the atp to the wta but in beach volleyball there's i mean so if you're a sponsor you're going i don't know which circuit to sponsor i don't know what to do and you can't have confusion in the marketplace when you're such a small sport to begin with and so fragmented it really hurts it what i've always advocated is that there needs to be a summit meeting with everybody that cares about with key people that yeah. care about the sport of beach volleyball get them all in a room and come out of there with some vision for the sport. We did that one time. It was called the Meeting of the Minds. In 1992, Nike got a bunch of us track and field guys together from all walks of life, including uh, some, some high school coaches, hmm. some agents, uh, international people, and got us all in uh, various different kind of uh, seminars that we had to kind of come up with, here, what do you think the direction of the sport should be? And I really believe that has not happened in beach volleyball in this country, and it needs to happen. It needs to happen soon. And I think if you can get some common understanding and common ground, then that's the point where you can move it forward. Is that even possible with the people that are still involved and what they unfortunately remember from the last 20 years and seem to carry with them to meeting to meeting? <laughs> I think uh, it is possible. And I think it, 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 um, it requires uh, somebody to kind of moderate the meeting that has no no particular who understands the situation but doesn't side with one group or another just to try to get some common ground and figure out where to go with the sport but it can't continue fragmented because you can't get the sponsorship you can't get the tv uh interest in and that's really uh, a critical critical piece maybe we're in a place where the afl or the aba at the time were competing with what mm-hmm. became the nfl or the nba uh, you have to go through that that process and the problem it seems with beach volleyball is it keeps collapsing and so you start over with that process of people trying to take over that marketplace going and seeing value in that marketplace still and trying to put themselves in there because we had jose cuervo and img we had uh, the nvl we had what was left of the avp all on top of one another looking for that same space i think um the biggest issue in beach volleyball is the cost of presentation. And I think if you were to lower the cost of presentation, I went out to the Manhattan Beach Open, and that was a great event. They still had a VIP uh, area, but it was sitting, a sitting VIP area. 
And that harkened back to the old days. Mm-hmm. When you have $500,000 staging costs, you just can't make it work in beach yeah. volleyball. You have to have very, very small staging costs. And uh, if you have small staging costs, then you're, you're keeping your overhead down. And I believe that should be the case. And I also believe you have to take, I mean, Seaside is a perfect example. There are 900 teams in Seaside, if you have a prof- and they have a professional tournament there. But it should be better supported by the top players. And the calendar is a problem, too, with the FIVB events. And, and uh, you have to have the top players here, but you can't. Everybody's uh, wheelhouse is the summer. Yeah. So you have to have a relationship with the FIVB. And the FIVB has to have a relationship with the U.S. too. So there's a mutually beneficial relationship, but it can't be antagonistic. Correct. Each one needs the other. And um, I just go back to that time where, where Jerry Solomon was kind of puffing out his chest, saying, look, the FIVB needed us more than we need them. And that, that's not the case. That's it's a reverse. Short, and it's a short-sighted view anyways. Yeah. We'll be right back here on the Net Live. We'll take a short break. We have Tom Fuhrer in-house for the entire program. You're going to learn a lot about the TV business. You're going to learn a lot about the TV business as it relates to the sport of beach volleyball and the history of the sport of volleyball and beach volleyball. Had a lot of fun to have Tom in here so far. We'll see where this goes, Jeremy. I, I will weave it back to motorsports somehow. Well, there's been tons of drinking already. And we'll still discuss you out at the racetrack this weekend. Oh, yeah. Oh, Bruno. Sing it, buddy. Super Bowl edition of the Net Live.
Welcome back to the Net Live here on Volleyball Magazine. I want to make sure we thank Volleyball Magazine as well as the ABCA for their continued support of this program and the opportunity for you to listen to us most weeks here live from the home court or via iTunes, whichever way you are able to get our broadcast. Kevin Barnett and Jeremy Rouché sitting in here as usual, and we are pleased to be joined by Tom Fuhrer, who's going to sit in. And if you don't know who Tom Fuhrer is, get out your iPad, your computer, your device, look up Tom and get, figure get out on the line. that get he's... Get on the line and figure it out. <laughs> get on the line <laughs> and figure out that he has been involved with television forever. Uh, and he has been a critical part and a big part of volleyball on TV for some time. Now, we were we were just kind of talking off air, Tom, and uh, discussing the demographic, and I thought that was a very interesting thing that people need to realize, that the demographic of this sport is 35 to 54, not 18 to 35, which is the demographic that, the holy grail of demographics, I guess, for most advertisers. And that this is not an extreme sport, and I've had several people tell me, oh, this should be linked in there with skateboarding and surfing and, you know, whatever else. No, 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 it's not. It, it doesn't look like it. It doesn't act like it. And when you're at a tournament, I remember in 1992 even, the heyday of the sport. I'm sitting courtside, and some guy tells me to be quiet. We watch this like tennis, quote, unquote. Like, did, you, did you smack him? Should have. <laughs> I need to be a little bigger at the time. What, little... what does he say to that guy that plays the trumpet in Hermosa Beach during, during, right, during play? <laughs> yeah, I'm not exactly. sure Maybe there's a line for everything, but uh, I, I just think it's interesting for people to know that this is an older person's sport as far as being a viewer. And we've talked about this before, and I wonder what your opinion is on this. Where is the stumbling block between participation and fandom? Because volleyball is one of those sports, unfortunately, for the media situation, that has a massive number of people participating, but has almost no pure fans. People that maybe didn't play at all, or maybe they play at their Y, but they love to watch the sport because the NFL, NBA, NHL, they have fans. People that don't even necessarily have any experience on the surface itself playing on the field, on the court, on the ice, but they love the sport. They like being a fan of the sport and that experience. It doesn't seem like volleyball has been able to draw in people for the experience of being a fan. And there's an analogous relationship here to uh, running in track and field. I mean, LA Marathon, you're going to have 25,000 people. New York, you had 45,000 people. Uh, Boston, who knows how many they're going to have after the bombing. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of people that run, but hardly anybody follows track and field. So there's a very big analogy here. And I think part of the issue is is this. Um, the, um, The sport has to be marketed better, and you have to be able to see your heroes other than once every four years at the Olympic Games. Yep. And um, usually the way that's done is by a routine place where you can easily find it, especially in this 500-channel universe. So back in the day when Prime Ticket was successful televising beach volleyball, it was on a delayed basis back then, but Monday nights, you knew where to find it. Monday nights for 25 or 26 consecutive weeks. And that's where I say you've got to go back to what worked. You have to have somebody that's willing to put it on the air and make it a series so it's easily found. And I go back to it's very, very important to have that intimate setting because in beach volleyball, you can get closer to the world-class elite athletes than you can in any sport unless you uh, have courtside seats at the NBA, for NBA games, right? Well, I mean, I've got those, but most people don't. But the players aren't interacting with you unless they <laughs> run over you trying to chase a basketball. Right. And I think no matter who, what your personality is, when the fans are that close, you have a tendency to stuff gets said, 
There's a little bit more heckling. There's a lot more atmosphere, so to speak. But when you're in the stands, you can't even see Rosie's Raiders when you're, you know, center court <laughs> and you've got um, Rosenthal playing with Dalhaus or whatever. But those guys get swallowed up. And part of the charm of beach volleyball are constituencies like Rosie's Raiders or the hecklers from mm-hmm. the old days and things of that nature because people would laugh, they would have fun, you'd have the trumpet player in Hermosa Beach. All that lent character to the sport, and it just becomes another professional sporting event, and you can't compete when you're just another professional sporting event. There's too much competition out there. So you have to play to your strengths And playing to your strengths was the accessibility of the fan to the player, to the world-class player. And uh, when beach volleyball started to go away with that, that's when they took on all those infrastructure costs, which saddled them with a tremendous amount of debt. And I think you've got to go back to the future, go back to what worked, and build from there. Do you think, because I have an opinion on this, but do you think the Manhattan Beach model from this year would work in all of the markets? Like no stands, just everybody up close and personal to the court, or do you think you would build maybe smaller stands closer to the court, but still have people maybe VIP, especially center court? Because on the outer courts, you can stand five feet away from the player's box, and you know the players can hear you there for sure. I don't think there should be any stands, period. Okay. I think that, um, and that goes Bring for, your couch down like the old days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That goes for international, too. Hmm. Now, at Seaside, what they do is they build their own little uh, sand... Uh, uh, oh, berms. Berms, exactly. Oh, okay. And sand berms are fine. Uh, but the character of the sport is to be up close. And even if you have to stand and you're 9 or 10 deep, you can thrive off the crowd. And, the, and, and also beach volleyball at one time was a very social event. Oh, I see my friend down the beach. I'm going to go talk to him. And um, when you have a huge stand and it swallows up this massive geogra- geographical area, it's mm-hmm. hard to get from one point to the other. And then all the security and all that, it takes the fun out of going there. Okay, but if you have an egalitarian approach, it makes it easy to get from court four. I hear the roar on court one. I got to scooch over to court one and you don't have to go through security. You don't have to find a seat in the stands. You move over to court one. Now I'm going to go over to court five. And that freedom of movement is part of what is the best thing about beach volleyball. Yeah, it becomes hard to casually interact with what's happening. If you want to talk to your friend and at the same time kind of keep tabs on what's happening in the match you're interested in or whatever, and something explodes, ah, you can look over and sort of figure out what's happening. Where if you're underneath 50 feet of stands, you're like, i got to go. You can't talk to your friend anymore. You've got to run back inside or make the decision to stay completely disconnected from the sport or the event that's happening or the match that's happening and stay with your friend outside. I, one other thing, and I think it's very important, is that the players have to learn they have to be characters. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I think <clears throat> the interaction with the fans will help, but we had brought up uh, off-air Dana Camacho. In my opinion, the AVP should have supported this guy, and, and, and in fact, I would, have, I would have paid under the table to have Dana Camacho <laughs> and Phil Dalhauser play a tournament together. You have oh. one guy 6'9", and the other guy 5'9". That's the kind of stuff that's going to be interesting for the sport. And a guy like Dana Camacho, he's a throwback to the old days. Mm-hmm. And, and not to promote this guy and not to um, help this guy along for whatever his demons are. But those are the characters that will draw people into the sport. You need black hat and white hat people. And I think that the players have to be too cool now. They can't truly show their emotions. It's a part of this new generation. People say, oh, Phil and Todd are so boring. But I've seen Todd get... Yes. 
but I've seen, <laughs> I've, seen, seen <laughs> I've seen Todd lose his uh, – Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know. Do it more. <laughs> yeah, do it more. Lose his cookies sometimes. And there's nothing that's kind of more fun than – I mean, I, I, I'm, I, there may be referees listening in on this. But, <laughs> but when a player Sorry, really refs. argues with the ref and throws sand and does stuff like that, automatically you sit straight up. Oh, yeah. Because uh, – and, and it would be nice to have a player rip his shirt off like Tim Hovland did. And, <laughs> and you've got to play to the crowd a little bit more. And these guys, I think – uh, and, and I'm talking directly, hopefully some of them are, are listening, be a character. You might have to be somebody that maybe isn't uh, what you truly are, but sports is entertainment. Absolutely. Play a role. Well, we were talking before the start about George Romain and George of the Jungle. I mean, he was this big guy that could hit the crap out of the ball. And people like to heckle him a little bit because he was so big, and he would respond. I do remember him going after a fan once. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, George, George has some issues with that stuff. I mean, the, from the character side, this sounds like a job for Canyon Seaman. We need to bring him in. He's WWE Director of Talent, right? We, right. We need to have him apply that model, not, not take characters out. Let's apply that model here. We need Phil Dahlhauser with a fake black beard like uh, Hulk Hogan in the late 90s. It's funny. I was thinking of Canyon because um, it's, it's, uh, we must be on the same wavelength. Because I remember going down to uh, Manhattan or Hermosa. He was playing on an outer court. And this wasn't that long ago, three or four years ago, when he was kind of playing on and off. And uh, there were some people he was playing across the net. And they had uh, they, uh, it was a team from down south. Uh, oh, it was Ty Loomis. Ty Loomis had a mm. bunch of guys that were a little soused and they were giving Canyon a rough time yeah. and um, it, it kind of added drama. Canyon was getting a little bit upset. And then I go back to uh, a time when Dax Holdren and Billy Strickland were playing in Long Beach against uh, 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 Rosenthal and Jake Gibb right before the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And that was going to three games and all of Rosie's Raiders were getting on Dax because he was so old. He was a little overweight, but Dax was holding his own, and he was interacting with Dax him. Dax loves it. I mean, Dax yeah. was interacting, and I always thought Dax was, you know, when it was Holdren and Rogers, Team Stoic. But, um, <laughs> but Dax was interacting with the fans because he was a little older in his career and all Felt of that. Felt more comfortable out there. And again, you had people sitting straight up because there was more activity than just bump, set, hit. That's yeah. what my wife says. It's all just bump, set, hit. There's nothing there. And, uh, Agreed. So- there's, there's none of depth. Well, my concern, and we have talked about this many times on the show, when I started with AVP now 11 or 12 years ago, everybody that didn't know the sport, friends of mine, they're like, oh, you're working for the AVP. Does Karch Karai still play? Mm-hmm. And yeah, Karch was 85 at the time, but he was still playing. <laughs> but my concern was that was the only player that anybody knew. Right. And still to this day, still is the only player. you hear it referenced on ESPN. Um, you hear Karch's This name weekend. Rip. Yeah, of course. Somebody tweeted at us this weekend that, oh, he Karch Karai'd that one. Yeah. That Holy there, cow. But that there wasn't enough marketing on individual players, especially since, yeah, you want to market Kerry and Misty because they're one of the greatest teams of all time. They had an amazing run. But at any moment, they could switch partners. So if you're going like, oh, Chicago in a month, I'm in Chicago, I can't wait to see Karen Misty, but they're not playing together for some reason that weekend, then do you have the same interest as in, oh, I love Carrie Walsh, she's my favorite volleyball player, regardless who she's playing with, that I always felt like they needed to market individual players. I agree. Um, what, 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 what would be funnier than Marlboro sponsoring Dana Camacho? I mean, I mean that's the kind of stuff that you need, okay? Um, and, I mean, I'm not pro smoking whatsoever. I'm anti smoking, <laughs> but saying. but you just pro funny though. <laughs> you, you know, you, you have awesome. to have 
uh, you have to be imaginative in these associations. And if I was the AVP, I'd, I'd freaking pick up the phone and call Marlboro and go, you're not going to believe this, but we have a beach volleyball player who's got a skill set like nobody else in the game. And, you know, get, make some uh, custom apparel for him. Yeah. Throw him $10,000. Well, we have a little bit of that, not the smoking side of it, but a little bit of character with Casey Patterson now. You hear a yes, lot of people talking about Casey. We were in Cincinnati this year, and Cincinnati has a hard-structured stadium. I've been there before. Yeah, so they're not necessarily right on top of it. Um, But Casey was talking to a guy when he would go back to serve that was halfway up the stadium because the guy's voice was so loud. But Casey would point up to the guy, make a comment to him before he goes back to serve. He did a couple aces and kept thanking that guy. So there was crowd interaction there. Um, So there is some of that coming back. And I hear some of these players behind the scenes talk about, I need to be a little bit more vocal on the court. And I think sometimes, though, there's a confidence in that, like, Oh, is that going to take me out of my game, or are the other players going to be upset with me about that because everybody's pretty good friends on and off the court? But why wasn't that a problem in the early 90s? I mean, I, look, I go back to Steve Obradovich and Gary Hooper, the most entertaining team in the history of any sport. I mean, they weren't winning every week, and a lot of times they would take fifths and fourths and thirds, but my God, you wanted to go to a tournament every week because you never knew it was going to come out of their mouths. Mm-hmm. And so what if you're not the best? You know, what, what, what's wrong with that? You're getting a feel for the knowledge and the depth of knowledge of Tom Fuhrer, our special guest today here on the Net Live. And if you're throwing out a Holdren, Allen, Loomis, Camacho, going all the way back into the annals of beach volleyball further to names that you probably don't even know. Dax would walk back to serve or during a point would look up at Geeter and I and start talking to us. Love it. Yeah. I and, remember a guy, Steve Verbalovich, who's Dan Verbalovich's brother. And Steve Verbalovich would serve... Again, part of my wolf pack. Yes, part of your wolf pack. Supercross. He, he would do a roundhouse serve. Okay? Mm-hmm. And there was a guy, Jeff Jordan, who had the most unusual serving motion. You know, he was kind of throwing it up, and then he would stutter step back and then hit the ball. <laughs> I mean, though, again, like the Camacho sky ball or whatever. Sinjin Smith had a great sky ball. If you can identify a certain play with a certain... The Kong block, Randy Stokos. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, those are things to market people by, too, is, is the unique uh, element. I mean, yeah, uh, Sean Rosenthal is, is uh, ambidextrous. There was a guy, Jerry Escalier, back in the day who was ambidextrous. And, and okay, that's the Ambo guy. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's the smoking guy. That's the, you know. <laughs> smoking it's guy. It's true, though. I mean, it's absolutely true. That's how people yep. identify yep. with people. You have to have an acronym. For those of you that were counting at home, I know there's a count to the motocross reference. For those that know, <laughs> we've, for, for those that know Tom Fuhrer, that was 34 minutes to a track and field reference. Well, <laughs> really dropped that one in there. <laughs> uh, yeah, Tom, your point earlier about consistency of delivery is an interesting thing about the Monday nights that delayed, but it was still on. And also, I remember Hot Summer Nights with the Four Man on ESPN. You would have the Four Man Tour was part of Hot Summer Nights that included some surfing some volleyball, and then actually I think it was sprint cars after that because I used to watch like Thursday Night Thunder, which came on after Hot Summer Nights, or maybe it was Tuesday Nights that had that. Uh, a lot of motorsports analogies here, Kevin. I know. It's just the way it goes dr- We have here. a drinking game on the show. Every time <laughs> Kevin brings up motorsports, our fans have to drink. See, the, the first half of the show, people remember. The second half, they've blacked out. <laughs> <laughs> they've drunk so much. <laughs> no, in, in Manhattan Beach, I thought it, Manhattan Beach, and part of it was the lighting this year. It looked cool 
the the set of it would look neat down there. It was kind of on an angle to the pier, and then you had a day where the clouds were kind of high, cirrus clouds and circling. Were you doing in the TV and, for that, or was something? I was and it not, looked really cool. I, but you was, were down there. Yeah, I was down there. The problem though with it was Sorry, during the finals, the handheld cameras were shooting right into the sun. Because and that, of the way the court was angled. Yes, exactly, and that that creates problems. Um, so that wasn't ideal in in that sense uh, because you were you, following the ball against the sun made it a little bit difficult and the flares and everything of that nature. Uh, but everything else about it was wonderful. I have a question for you about <clears throat> TV angles. We've talked about it on here and some people on the chat board have brought it up too. Um, different TV angles, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. when I go to a match, especially indoor, um, because I can choose my seat there. I sit behind the baseline. Yep. I don't sit at the 50-yard line like I would a football game. And I feel like I personally can see the – how the play, play how the play is developing yeah. up. Any has there ever been talk about changing the camera angles? Because I feel like we're all still looking at it from the fifty yard line football camera camera view. You or know, basketball. There's, there's, a, basketball, there's yeah. a similar analogy with uh, NHL hockey. Probably the best way to see the game is from the uh, end zone seats because then you can see the line changes and things of that nature. I think the problem with this, uh, Jeremy, uh, is that you need to be able to direct people's eye towards something. In order to see the play, mm. you have to widen out. Mm-hmm. And for a volleyball fan, that's great, but everybody's always trying to get the non-core fan, and you're too far away gotcha. when you do the end zone because you do have to be wide wide out. But here's my big problem. During the Olympic Games, invariably the FIVB has a host broadcaster that doesn't know anything about volleyball. <laughs> Accurate. So, yes. Shocker. In yeah. fact, yeah. So it's, it's, a Chinese crew, a Cuban crew, it's people have no so idea It's so frustrating because they'll do a replay, and the replay is only of the hit, and yeah. not of a great dig, not of a mm-hmm. great set, but just the hit. And then they don't loosen up their cameras, so if somebody's running to get the ball behind, uh, you know, behind the court, yeah, they they don't they don't have any finesse for for how that happens. So it really inhibits the way the game is watched. And for people that don't know, the Olympic Games works this way with the broadcaster, and in particular, I'll, I'll give you some information on how it works with us and NBC. But the host broadcaster hires a bunch of crews from all over the world, and you will get one particular country worth of TV people that will show up. We had Cubans at the last Olympic Games. They got in the truck. They didn't even know what the heck was in the truck. Nice. They're coming from Cuba. I think, you know, they still have 1950s cars. They might have 1960s television down there because they got in the truck and they had to be taught how to use the truck, first of all. So throughout the tournament, the liaison, the guy who's in charge there, and and us, we spend time trying to teach them, by us I mean our technical crew, not me, to teach them how to shoot the game and educate them on some of the best angles, when to do the replays. But it is an absolute struggle between their inexperience and the language barrier to get that done. Sure. Furthermore, at a place like beach volleyball, NBC has its own cameras, its own camera people. It is 100% an NBC shoot. They do not take the world feed, which is what the host well, broadcaster puts out. Sometimes you do. You can, take, uh, you can supplement. Um, everybody takes the world feed. Don't kid yourself. You, won't, you, can you won't see it a lot on beach volleyball. With, with the indoor side, you will see mostly world feed. Mm-hmm. You will see occasionally our cameras. We usually have right. two. At ours, that's the way it's allocated. We're allowed two cameras. We get two cameras. And you will know it's us because we don't have the bug, as it's called, the score up in the corner. So anytime you don't see the score in the corner during regular live play or some replay, you know that that was us, right. not and, them. 
it's what, what happens is is that there are certain sports they call them a venues that NBC will have that will supplement the existing world feed cameras track and field swimming yep. beach volleyball and diving diving okay yep, yep. Um, so and actually the world feeds have gotten better and better for most of these sports but uh, indoor and beach volleyball are still just wretched yeah and then I was uh, listening to the world feed, what they call the um, guide track. And um, uh, the pronunciation of Rosenthal's name, which should be very, very easy, was uh, Rosendahl. Uh, Rosendahl. Uh, and so um, basic pronunciations. And, and to me, one of the most important things in broadcasting is to get your pronunciations right. Uh, and um, on the world feed, which is supposed, basically most countries take the world feed, including the U.S. sky track, so mm-hmm. to speak, because they can't afford to send their own broadcasters. It's amazing how, how many errors there are, and it's frustrating. And volleyball is, I think, the most um, blatant example of this. In track and field, you know, they've, they've had a group from Finland do the last number of world championships and Olympic games. They do a pretty good job. But both volleyball and beach volleyball just are not covered properly. And you think that's because the popu- well, the priority placed on volleyball? Could be. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of people that used to... Uh, uh, one of my old bosses um, at Turner, Mike Klatt, uh, was a big... Uh, he, he worked for o, uh, OBS, Olympic Broadcasting Services, uh, which is run by Manolo Romero. And he would hire a lot of the people to to do the host broadcast, but there could be political reasons. Yeah, of oh, course. We need to have Cubans. Of course. We don't, you know, and and I think that can be just like with anything else. Politics plays a huge role. Absolutely, it does. So there, if you just learned a little bit about how he's got Olympic edu- sports educated, educated here on the net live. <laughs> uh, Tom, I know one of the things we wanted to touch on with you here was the adoption of perhaps a Brazilian type training system mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for beach volleyball. Those that don't know Brazil just recently within the last year has adopted a national team program for their beach athletes. And that is right down to how it's run indoors. They have a coach, they have a training facility, they have times, they have required practices. You're on the national team. You don't even choose your partner. The national team tells you who you're going to play with in tournaments and they continue to move people around and high level people this being brazil they're moving around high level people is this something you think that's coming to the united states should come to the united states or is the perhaps the future well the it's it's an interesting dilemma um in brazil recently they broke up a couple of the teams and pedro selberg selgado is now playing with emmanuel and uh bruno oscar schmidt is playing with alison so who wins the first tournament when they come back, 40-year-old Marcio Raju and 39-year-old <laughs> Ricardo. Yeah. And the last time we saw those two guys play, Ricardo, uh, Marcio was going crazy, and Ricardo was yelling at him. I think Marcio got a point, uh, and it was a, clearly the ball was in in the World Championships. Yeah. But Marcio went bonkers, and, and that ended that partnership internationally. But those guys at 40 and 39 win, uh, and I always feel the... With all due respect to the AVP, I'm much more fascinated by the Brazilian circuit because there's so many, so many good teams. And um, I don't, Kevin, I think it's, uh, it's wrought with politics when you have a national. Uh, and what I love about Brazil is the amount of people they brought to Long Beach. That's what they bring to mm-hmm. every tournament. They've got physios. They've got doctors. They probably have psychologists and everything of that nature. But 
when it comes down to picking partners, uh, I like the idea of having a training group, but when it comes down to the point of picking partners, it gets a little squirrely for me because I don't know that I would have paired Pedro Salgado and Emmanuel after Pedro and Bruno were the second-ranked FIVB team in the world last year. Uh, Why break that team up? Well, I think it's different than the indoor model, too. Like, you have a head coach that's coaching one team as opposed to there's not one sand coach that coaches just one team. You have multiple teams and multiple people trying to play out there. I don't think picking them, I just think it's, it's too it's too much different that can go wrong. If, Does that make sense? If an indoor coach can handle a roster of 20 mm-hmm. and handle on a regular basis a roster of 12 for every event, why is it that a quote, beach volleyball coach can't handle eight players. It's not that they can't, but you're not, you're not picking one team. Like, so Karch now is picking one team to gel together as a whole that he's coaching. You, as Brazil, are not picking just one team to go to the Olympics. No, but it's no different than picking setters and hitters that work well together, I'll middle blockers and setters that work well together, pieces that fit into that puzzle well together, you're just putting together three individual puzzles. I'll tell you the difference, Kevin, is that the way that the Olympic qualifying is done, to a degree, of course, is qualifying through the FIVB circuit, the number of teams that you can have from an individual country. Now, the federations can determine the makeup of those teams, but I think that there is still a tremendous amount of equity placed on how you perform internationally, and if it's only two people then there's a much greater chance for error than when it's six people. And so you've got to, you know, last year, Emmanuel played with Elisone. He also played with Evandro, the Mm seven-footer. Now they've got him playing with Pedro. And Emmanuel's going to be 41 this year. Mm -hmm. Politically, you wonder, should Emmanuel even be considered for the Olympic team? Because he's going to be 43. Now you take a guy like Pedro Salgado, who basically got screwed out of competing in 2012 because of that bogus drug test. Uh, And now he's played so well with Bruno, and now you kind of, quote-unquote, stick him with Emmanuel. Uh, I don't know. Normally I would say I'd love to have a national team and people picking these players, but in seeing how this Brazilian model has worked or not worked, I'm I'm a little hesitant in that aspect. But does the way that it's being done now... It's terrible now. with the international scene. Now, it, it, the U.S., it, it's just so haphazard. And um, there should be a large amount of money from USAV. Uh, and again, this is going to rankle some people. But USAV puts an enormous amount of money into indoor volleyball mm-hmm. and very little money into the beach uh, volleyball side. Not true anymore. Well, it's the same amount? The budgets are basically the same. Would... Would when, you agree that? that beach volleyball brings more attention to the sport of volleyball in general than indoor does? Uh, from a standpoint of the Olympic Games? Period. If you throw out Misty and Kerry, no. You can't, but you can't throw them out. That's what I'm saying. No, but it, it, I can because they're gone in the next Olympics. You don't have Misty Kerry in the next Olympics. Still haven't answered my question, though. Do, does it draw more attention? Has it in the last couple of Olympic Games? Yes, it has. Okay. Here's what people, but only because of Misty and Carey, not because of any other, not, not because of Phil and Todd, even you know, in their performance. Here's Mike. what I advocate: a USA Beach Volleyball general manager, and that general manager is uh, primarily involved 100% of the time with getting sponsorships for these teams, building a training center, 
getting the players, selecting the players with a group to participate in the training center. Everything up to except for picking the teams that, that I mean, you can certainly sway, but it's very hard. You're, look at Rosenthal and Dalhauser, left side, right side issues. Are you exposing yourself, though, to the whims of 22-year-old kids? If you allow within your team an opportunity for them to have a popularity contest, oh, I'm not going to play with him. Oh, I don't like him, and then you get, a, and then if I'm a divisive effect on the team, I can say oh, I, don't, I don't like you know, that player over there, Bob, and, and I'm going to get two of my buddies who are on this team with me to say I'm not going to play with Bob either, and we're going to get Bob kicked off the team. I mean, without a coach being able to step in and make those finite decisions and say, you know what, tough. Rob, you're playing with Bob because we like the way it sounds. Rob and Bob. But, does, but doesn't, it, doesn't it affect the team chemistry if they don't like each other to begin with? Sure, but I think if you allow the power to go into the hands of the player versus the coach, you then have a problem, and you see it in professional sports all the time. If all of a sudden the, the power shifts from the coaching staff, the knowledge of the coaching staff and the organization to the players start dictating what's going on, and start rebelling against it never works out well. You never have team situation nor good results when the players, when the inmates are running the asylum. I think you make a compelling argument, um, certainly. Uh, I think it's a tough one. To, it's a tough call to make. Um, if you were the USA coach or general manager, would you keep Dalhauser and Rosenthal together? I would because, and we were talking about earlier, the perception is they've had a terrible year. But that's because expectations were so high. And I think that's why you have to keep it with, with the management people because, yeah, to the casual fan, they go, well, those guys stunk this year. But on paper. Well, they didn't stink On paper, this they year. actually did not. They no. weren't as good as you thought they would be this year, but that's the job of an educated coaching staff and administration to say, no, there, there's some things to work on here, but these guys are still awfully good. But I think it, they won more FIVB tournaments than anybody else because they won three. Correct. But – but that perception isn't there. No, the perception isn't there. I mean, personally, I would put Dalhauser with Nick Lucena because I think that um, uh, I think going back to that partnership and the way that Nick has matured, I think that's a better partnership for Olympic um, success than Dalhauser. Do you think they could do well internationally together? I do. Okay. I do. Because, you know, Lucena and Matt Furbringer made the final in Klagenfurt one yep. year. And I think Nick has, has really matured as an individual. He's not as, uh, I don't know what happened in Germany a few years ago, but basically he can't come back to the country. But, um, uh, Is that an off-court issue? Yeah, an off-court <laughs> issue. But I think he's learned to uh, control his temperament. Um, but I, I, I think that there are certain, I just don't know. I was a big proponent of Dalhauser Rosenthal at the, at the very beginning. But I do think it's hard if, Dalhauser has to play the right side, and, and Rosenthal plays the left side, and we saw them switch around in Manhattan Beach, and I just don't know whether that's the right partnership. And then, um, I don't know. Kevin, you make a good point about maybe a coach can be the one to determine whether that is the partnership or not the partnership. Uh, but I think definitely, without a doubt, we need to get a cluster of our best players together we need a beach general manager. We need somebody that's going to do all the logistics of entering them into FIVB events, pay their expenses, put them on the AVP circuit when, when necessary and when it makes sense. Uh, but somebody, they, they should not be thinking logistics. 
They shouldn't be thinking, i got to book myself on this airplane, i got to go book myself into this hotel. That should not be a part of anything. And there's where the rub is. Because beach volleyball for so many years was the refuge for those athletes that did not want to be told what to do, wanted to control their own destiny. But yet, when the tour collapsed, when things started falling apart around 2004, 2005, they came to USAV and said, oh, you should, be, you should be giving us all this money. They wanted nothing to do with USAV. As far as they were concerned, it was a redheaded stepchild. Don't touch us. Don't tell us what to do. We know better than you. But as soon as the money started running out, you owe us this money. Write us this check. Give us this support. But yet, they did not want any of the controls that go with people providing money. And that's the rub is, okay, we're going to take care of your travel. We're going to take care of your, your training. We're going to take care of your entry fees and making sure that it happens. We're going to take care of your visas and everything you need to travel across the world. We're going to give you the video support you need. We're going to give you the athletic trainers and the access you need, all these other things to improve your performance. But now you're accountable. Because I don't know an organization in the world that's going to put out a bunch of funds and just say, oh, whatever you do is fine. We'll take our chances, and maybe you'll be okay. I think you make a very strong point there. I mean, it's like you need athletes signing contracts and saying, this is what, uh, this is what I'm getting, and this is what I'm giving. Uh, and I, I think the sport has changed to the degree that um, it, we were talking about the generational change in players, that they were much more renegade back in the, back in the old days. Mm-hmm. I don't know that this group is as renegade nowadays. No, it takes time. Because the indoor team, it was the same thing, and I lived this one. Because when I joined the team in 1997, there was just a bitter, bitter feeling with USAV, with the people that were left. And I think partly because the people that were left felt like the previous generation, the Stavertlicks, the Samuelsons, the Storks, the, and not those guys individually, but that group of players from, say, 88 to, to 92 to 96, that group that went from 88 to 96, stole the money. That was the perception. That's not really what happened. I mean, the organization just took a dump in that period. So these guys arrive after 96 and the failure of 96 back to a team in 97 that has no money at all. And the perception of USAV is so negative within the players group at that point from 1997 through about 2000 that it it carries over and it produces a terrible performance in 2000 because the organization and the players have been at, at, at odds for a long time, and people don't like their jobs. There's several people on that roster in 2000 that hate their job. And unfortunately, I'm a younger player at that point. I end up into that. I'm young, I'm immature, and I end up into that. I end up hating my job. Like, How can you hate your job? You, you go to the gym and play volleyball for a living for crying out loud. You could be slogging it out anywhere else for half the money. Eight hours a day, nine hours a day, and, and struggling with that. But that happened. But then it took from 2001, when I think USAV finally started pushing the right direction, but more so even by 2004, 5, 6, USAV started pushing the right direction. I think Doug Beal ended up in the right spot as the CEO. I think that fit his skill set better at that time to then push into there and give some direction to this organization and start to do those things that would make it a winning organization. And you saw that feeling fade, except if you went and talked to players who played from 97 to 2000, and you, you ask them, oh, USAV this, USAV that, I'm like, you haven't even really been involved with the indoor team in the last however long. Or you talk to beach players around 2004, oh, USAV sucks, and this happened back in 97 or 98, like, let go of it, 
let the thing go the right direction because things started to go the right direction. But I think people have hung on to that, and that's we were laughing earlier about getting those organizations together and bringing them to Reykjavik or something. It, you, you have to deliver, and all USAV can do is, is go, this is the history, this is how we've messed up, and they've been, I, I think at times, very blunt about, yeah, we didn't support the beach. But by the same token, they were told not to. They were told, get your hands off of us. They said, yeah, we've made these mistakes. All we can do is go this direction. And I think the national team is one of those things, national team beach, that these guys, the, the generation we're talking about, Phil, Todd, Carrie, Misty, April, um, a, a, anybody who's been involved with beach volleyball for, let's say, the last 15 years, they have a certain way of doing things. But the national team and that notion of doing a national team for beach volleyball, for the qualification, that's the way it's going to be in the future, in my mind, because it doesn't work otherwise. It's got to be. But it's going to take time for these folks to age out, mm-hmm. and then everybody in has just been in that system. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at, like, Triborn and, and uh, Theo Bruner. These are guys that should be nurtured. Mm-hmm. We need to get them playing every single Norseka event. We need to get them uh, into uh, every single FIVB event to get the experience now so that they can be ready come 2016. And Triborn especially, we haven't had a young, young player come up through the ranks in an awfully long time. I mean, look at, the, look at our guys. I mean, it's, it's almost like Marcio and Ricardo, uh, the 79-year-old, you know, between the two of them, 79 <laughs> years old. <laughs> but it's, um, uh, you know, Phil and it, it seems like Rosenthal's been the phenom for so long, but yeah. he's getting into his mid-30s. Well, I think with Tri is where you can make the argument for somebody picking your partner. Because you wouldn't partner him with Haydn, because Haydn doesn't want to play internationally. So you would mm-hmm. obviously put him with somebody else. So you, if you're pro, I want somebody to pick my teammates for me. That's that's the player you would make that argument with. And the other, the player being paired with Try, may not want to do it at first, may not see the benefit to it. But it's up to people with more experience to and say vision. this is what could be. And it's not going to work out all the time. But it never works out all the time with the players making the decisions. And I'd rather have people that have experience as coaches have experience with the sport, and have seen this you're wider a, breadth. But you're also older. Well, right, but I, I understand that. There's a rub there. Yeah. But that's what you need is people making those decisions so that the athlete in five years looks back and goes, that was a good call. I've had that experience with Doug Beal. I, hate, I hated some of the things Doug Beal said and did and, and stuff, but, and some of them I still hate. <laughs> but, but a lot of them I look back and go, you but know. Yet he still comes on the show, thankfully. But, you know, Doug, Doug was right. With with a little more uh, a little more vision, a little more experience, I see. Oh yeah, that was a good decision. I don't think with today's world of beach volleyball, you can expect our athletes to compete in the haphazard decisions of twenty two year olds and compete with the world stage. That doesn't work anymore. We were just playing better because we invented the damn sport out on the beaches of California, or wherever you know you want to claim it in Brazil or wherever. But we were better in the AVP halcyon days where those athletes could walk out the AVP, go play the FIVB, and annihilate the competition mostly. Well, and you can see the rest of the world's getting better far as well, and you can see that their systems are different than our system. Well, look at Samoylovs. We don't have a system. Yeah, look at Samoylovs and Smedens. Samoylovs and Smedens went to Egypt in the off-season to train, okay? And they have a, they have a uh, I don't know, an Argentinian coach. 
So uh, you have two guys from Latvia training in Egypt with an Argentinian coach. Mm-hmm. But who paid for them to go? It's the Federation, to Egypt. Exactly. sure. And and so Kevin, I think you've won me over now. I, I I I'm I'm there now with the with the coach making the selection. You you, you yes. have a very compelling argument. I'm winning. But um, <laughs> but we can't allow for the fruit to come off the tree anymore. We have to make sure that we take Summer Ross and we nurture her and grow her, and we have to make sure that we take Lane, Lane Carrico and Heather Hughes mm-hmm. and all these young folks, and we have to nurture them, and, and okay, let's put them in Norseka events, and then let's, let's filter them into some and of, some of that events. And some of that is happening. I mean, they've, they Lane are. and um, Heather. Heather played like through December in some Norseka events, so some of that is definitely happening. But it's happening by accident. Correct. I'm, I'm right. with you on that. Yeah, I'm. A, I'm definitely in favor of nurturing Jen Kessie. No problem. Easy. I'm. I am Easy, on board. Easy, Kevin. Easy. You're listening to Net Live here on Volleyball Magazine. Thanks for being here, and thanks for being a part of our show. We have special guest Tom Fuhrer. We will continue with him in just a little bit. We do have College Volleyball Weekly coming up. Jay and Robbie calling in because things have been happening. This is kind of a dead time for volleyball, except if you're a fan of men's collegiate. Mm-hmm. What's happening there? So we will have that for you after the break. The Net Live, right back.
I guess Bruno Mars was a departure from the Super Bowl plan as of late, where after the wardrobe malfunction, which, by the way, I lived overseas for, and nobody overseas even cared. Ten years ago. You know what, Kevin, they, you know what they did with ago. it? You know what they did with it? Showed it. The offense that people had here. Yeah, they showed it. And then they also put a still of it in the paper. That's Not with funny. the blur or anything. Just There's a still of it in the paper. I didn't even know it really happened Relax. until you Puritan crazy. everybody here talked about it. Oh, until they went crazy about it on the news. People are nuts. Like, they've never seen a boob before. My God. It's ridiculous. But, but then their then they're, they're mantra... That's definitely a drinking word on this game. You said boob. <laughs> the NFL decided that you, that you had to be over the age of 50 as a performer in order to get the Super Bowl game. We brought back, like, the Eagles and Tom Petty and... Tom Petty's like 85 years old. The Rolling Stones. I mean, everyone knows Keith Richards is a vampire. I mean, come on. If they haven't seen a boob, then, then they've got bigger problems. <laughs> That's <laughs> correct. But, you know, the Bob Dylan Chrysler commercial, to me, stole the show. He was fabulous. Like that one? Yeah. I don't get Bob Dylan, so I wasn't in. Can we... I, just, I didn't grow up in that era. Can we I all agree Bob. that I like they, Jacob. they helped his voice a little bit? Because there's no way that was really... I agree with him. You know, speaking normally. Yeah. Maybe he had a little shot of whiskey first. People well, keep telling me whiskey's a good thing to li- liquidate the... Or, or I like Radio Shack's learners. commercial, too. They were able to make fun yeah. of themselves like and say, it. we're going to redo what we've done for the last, since whatever year we started. I was at a party. I could not hear anything. There were too many children at this party. So good. Thinking about getting rid of my children just so I can watch the Super Bowl. You didn't miss much, Kevin. Yeah. Correct. Jeez. <laughs> I, could, I could see the game. I, that was a dominating performance. Was, it was ugly. Uh, let's see if uh, Jay can put in another dominating performance here. Jay can Shermanize Rob again. <laughs> <laughs> Each week here on the Net Live, we are proud to present to you the American Volleyball Coaches Association College Volleyball Weekly, a recap of what was and a look at what should be. We try and bring in some experts because goodness knows I don't know what's going on, although I do with the men more so than, than I would like to let on. <clears throat> so we welcome in... Rob on the mic, Rob Asparrow from UC Irvine, and Jay Hasek, assistant coach from Penn State, to enlighten us each week. Gentlemen. Good morning, gentlemen. You said you're looking, you bring in a couple of experts. Let me know when you get those guys in here so we can really have some conversation. (laughs) (laughs) No, Bell, I'm kind of disappointed, Jay. I mean, I thought you'd carry that thing around with you and be ready. Wait, 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 which, what are you talking about? The bell from you last week? You the bell last week. I was waiting for a card girl to go around the home court here or something. Oh, oh my <laughs> gosh. I'll have to break it out for next time. I was actually going to take it home. We are using it for some other stuff. But anyways. <laughs> All right. Well, let's start with Robbie. Robbie, I know today you're wearing a black armband, perhaps an entire black outfit, and putting white roses on a casket because you see Irvine is dead, right? Oh, wow, that's coming on kind of strong, yeah. Oh, <laughs> man. Hey, UC Irvine lost two matches this week in an unusual situation. They did have top-ranked UCLA back-to-back, not, not back-to-back, but nearly back-to-back in the same week. A very strange fit of scheduling, but UCLA defeated UC Irvine 3-0 and 3-1. Tell us about it, Robbie. Well, as I saw you on Monday night, you know, we were all kind of guessing what Irvine was going to come out with against uh, the newly number one UCLA, and, you know, it was a different lineup once again. Uh, We saw a few faces out there that were kind of unexpected, and uh, I think by the time Irvine started figuring out what UCLA was doing, you could see in the the second and third sets, they they were beginning to get a hold of it, but just UCLA came out too strong uh, between Robert Page and Gonzalo Quiroga, and, you know, it's just a great effort. Uh, Michael Fisher was the, the standout that evening, and, you know, the freshman with 10 kills and three aces on the Eaters, oh. you know, stopped the runs. When, they were, when, when Irvine was making their runs, he came in big. So 
Um, yeah, it was, it was uh, I thought it was going to go a little bit longer than that, but UCLA just responded. Whenever they started, it started to get tight at the end, they came up. So yeah, what's, you know, take us through this, uh, these different lineups because it seems like Dave Niffen is uh, experimenting. I don't know if he's a, a 16th century alchemist and he's just mixing things and hoping it doesn't explode or what's going on there because he has had so many different lineups. And when do you think he's going to settle into a, a lineup that he feels can compete down the stretch? Well, I think that the Saturday night match against UCLA is is close to what that it's going to be. Um, you know, there's um, some good size out there, and they actually had a really good hitting efficiency uh, in the third set that uh, he inserted that new lineup, and I could see that coming on down the, uh, down the pipe here. Uh, as those players get more reps, I think that that could be it. So that was, uh, you know, bringing Saeda in the set, and you had Russell hitting outside again with uh, Hughes hitting opposite. And then the, the mainstays have been Maring and Kevorkin in the middle for Irvine. They've, they've been error-free in the middle. Um, you know, or they have a majority of points that are error-free with a lot of blocks. And Brinkley has been, you know, he's not performing as well as he did last year, but I think that as they figure more stuff out, you know, they're, they're going to get better. And I know that, that right now seeing them at the bottom end of the MPSF is reason potentially to wear a black armband, but, you know, I just I have faith in this team that they're going to figure it out. Well, maybe maybe he'll leave the same lineup in and it will ferment overnight. Something will happen and he'll discover <laughs> penicillin and it'll all work out just fine. Who knows? Uh, but UCLA, new poll just out from the AVCA. UCLA becomes the first repeat number one this season. UCLA holds on to it with a win-loss record of 9-1. and one. They stay at number one. Loyola slides to number two, because remember they were tied atop the rank last week. Loyola slides to number two, Pepperdine three, BYU four, USC in fifth. So not a ton of movement inside of there. Yeah, Long Beach State, Stanford stay in the same spots at six and seven, then Santa Barbara, Irvine, and Lewis. So Irvine still inside the top ten nationally. Now, Jay, you were telling us last week you were looking forward to your Penn State matches with IPFW and Ball State. Fill us in on how those went for the Nittany Lions. Oh, those actually were the weekend before, and I talked about them a little bit last week, but that's okay. I could talk about them again if you'd like. I'm too far back. Hold on. I got the wrong one out here. Jesus. What a show we're running I'm surprised, here, Jay. I'm, I'm surprised, Barney, that you're not actually giving, uh, giving Robbie the business by talking about Pepperdine because you are contractually uh, obligated to talk about them when they do well. So do you want to talk about that, or do you want to let that go for a little bit and then let me go? <laughs> let me switch screens here. We're going to talk about Pepperdine beating BYU 3-2 because, yes, that, I will now check that off in my contract. Uh, fulfilled. Yeah. I expect there my you paycheck uh, the cross on the mount there in Malibu. Uh, so number three takes down number four BYU, but it was a good match, Robbie. Yes, it was, and you know it. It was. Uh, I was watching on the game track from working my match, uh, which you know multitasking here. But man, it was exciting to see what was going on on the tracker. You know, of course, it came down to the, the big guns as Parker Comeback and and Josh Taylor for Pep. You know, they had 17 kills and 21 respectively, and Parker Comeback hit 406 for the night. Um, you know, Taylor Sander was on fire. I mean, it could have gone any way. At one point, the game tracker froze. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> but, you know, that match looked like it could have been an ugly match. One, uh, Pep hit 242 and BYU hit 229. So there's a lot of blocking going on there, it looked like, towards the end. Like, the, the blocking game woke up. And, you know, there is, there's definitely the, the, the chess match between uh, Dunphy, Coach Dunphy and Coach McGowan going on there because you could see the, the switch of the scores the way it was going. 
Well, all right, Jay, let's get to you because it appears from <laughs> what I'm seeing now online that you guys have entered the Our Sisters of the Poor section of the schedule. You, uh, you crushed Mount Olive, and then I don't know how you lost the set, but you did it to St. Francis. Well, uh, Mount Olive obviously is, is, I think, the returning champion or the champion match from the Conference Carolinas. They're, uh, they're rebuilding a little bit down there for that match, so we took care of them pretty, pretty handily. Saturday night we played St. Francis. St. Francis is a much improved team, and you know it's, it's easy to relay these teams to maybe some teams in past years from the conference and say, well, maybe they're not that good. St. Francis is much bigger. They're much better blockers than they used to be. they got more fire power uh, and they're not a bad team and uh, they came in this weekend and, and gave us a handful and we you know at, at first I think we were we came out pretty confident and then once they started to you know push us around a little bit I think we responded with as best we could so um, hats off to St. Francis Michael Rumba doing a nice job over there and they, they played well um, but I'll tell you about a couple other matches I thought that were interesting IPFW uh, and Ball first, State Give it to me. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, that's a ba- <laughs> This is a, a match that uh, Vinny Lopes, who does a fabulous job with men's volleyball reporting from around the country, uh, did an article and said that this has been ranked one of the top ten sporting events in the state of Indiana every year is the match between IPFW and Ball State men's volleyball. Now, when you look at the different various sporting events that go on in Indiana, the Indianapolis 500 being one of them, uh, the NFL Combine being another one there I mean there's some good things that go on there so for this match that's right the Supercross everybody hoist one right now so when you guys uh, (laughs) when you see that that match gets on the list of the top 10 sporting events that says something and you know Ball State and IPFW battled back and forth and went five Ball State pulling it out and I think they went up 6-1 in the beginning of that fifth game and, and only won by a handful of points uh, in the end, but uh, congratulations to Ball State. They're they're having a, another pretty good year there, and, uh, and and really happy for Joel Walton and the guys. Loyola also handling uh, Ohio State in three straight. Ohio State seems to be rebuilding still. Loyola uh, is just moving along, and you know I know that they're number two in the rankings. And I think when you look at you know the results that UCLA has beating Irvine both times, and Irvine uh, you know walking away from that match, I, I think it kind of makes sense. But Loyola is going to be a real nightmare down the stretch, and I'm I'm you know interested to see if uh, if they and UCLA were to meet right now, who would walk away? And I know that a lot of the homers out west are going to think that UCLA is going to walk all over, and I. I just don't think that's the case. So, um, you know, the, the stats right now are Loyola is going to be a handful for anybody coming up, and I'll, I'll talk about those matches. Uh, Cal Baptist uh, beating Princeton in three, and Princeton was actually uh, a couple of swings and a couple of points away from taking a couple of sets. Uh, NJIT, that's your favorite team. Yeah. NJIT wins 3-1 over Barton, another team down there from the Conference Carolinas. Bart. Uh, what was that? Barton, that's, that's another one of these schools sounds like a person. <laughs> yeah, that's another one of those schools that sounds like a person, Barney, yes. Pepperdine, isn't Pepperdine a person? Pepperdine sounds like, guy, right? Barton sounds like your buddy uh, down in the corner. I don't know, you played against Barton, I beat him up. <laughs> what, what is the mascot? Absolutely. What are they, the Barton College Bruisers? What are they? You know, if you give me a couple seconds while Robbie talks, I'll find out who it is. I've got it on. <laughs> All program. right. Well, let's, let's get back to Robbie then. Ro- Robbie, I want to ask you about USC because Lucas Yoder continues to be extremely impressive at that outside hitting spot. I mean, he's taking confident, hard swings. He's passing the ball well. 
if I had to pick right now, he's my MPSF Rookie of the Year at, at this point of the season. But is he enough for USC to really challenge on the national scene this year? It seems like they still have some other big questions, the biggest of which I think is at the opposite spot. You know, you've got it right on. Yeah, Lucas Yoder, well, first of all, this has been playing phenomenally as a freshman, so I think you're right on as far as being the uh, newcomer of the year, freshman of the year. Um, he's just been a great jumper for them and has a great range on his wrist, and people are, are having difficulty stopping him. Now, as far as USC, another person that could show up on there is Benish, their middle, uh, Andy Benish, who's been That's playing right. extremely well for them as well. Now, and you know, with the the in the mix, you've got Micah Christian feed him the balls. You think this team would be like really excellent at this time, but you know that opposite position, like you said, has, has been the bane that they've been switching around between McKibben, um, Rivera. Um, we're seeing Tanner Jansen in the mix, and they just don't have a, a consistent right side attacker coming in right now. But once if they figure that out, I think that's going to be the key for USC this year. So um, you know, Lucas is doing well. You know, he's passing well, and Cassie's been playing phenomenally on defense uh, as a libero. So, you know, that piece, it's going to come down to the offo, I believe. Yeah, definitely looking for some firepower are the USC Trojans. Now, Hawaii, another big question mark. They come in and drop two to UC Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara, a team that doesn't really have any huge guns. They just seem to be a very good team. They will dig you to death and transition you to death. What do you think about that matchup? If they play two more matches right now, does it go the same way, Robbie? You know, I think that it would end up being a split because I think the fact that Santa Barbara had it at their house, I mean, it sounded like it's a pretty crazy crowd in there really rooting for the Gauchos, and, you know, they really oh, picked yeah. up that momentum in the second night. Um, you know, they were, you know, Evan Light was, was playing extremely well for the Gauchos. Um, <clears throat> and, I, you know, Jonas Safe had just a, a – a string of blocks to turn it for, for uh, UCSB on the second night. <laughs> yeah, Jonah, Jonah Safe, one of those names that's maybe just slipped under the radar for you at the setter position. We've talked about Matt West, of course, Micah Christensen and his time with the national team, and there's some good talent, James Shaw up at Stanford, but Jonah Safe is a, a tremendous talent. I just wonder, Robbie, if you worked for UC Santa Barbara instead of UCI, would you, would you petition them to change it to Rob on the Mike Gym instead of Rob Gym that they play in? <laughs> well, you know, that thing just, it's got holes all over it. It drips when it rains. You know, uh, I don't think I'd want to put my name on that thing. <laughs> okay. You know, oh. on that. Yeah, they need new lights. Actually, I, I was told by their, their head coach that, uh, <laughs> Rick, that uh, you could put that, we need some new lights and perhaps some paint in Rob Jim, please. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> all right, G, uh, they're uh, Barton Bulldogs, right, Jay? That's what you put here on the yeah. table. Barton Bulldogs. Yeah, the Barton Bulldogs. All right, so coming up, are we talking about that? Are we going into the uh, to the oh, upcoming? Oh wow, Jay, matches? running the show now. <laughs> right. Hey, listen, you know I, I'm a mover and a thinker. I got to get things going here. You got that <laughs> I don't have bell ringing for food at home. I, that's hey, right. You know, I, I don't we, have. We used time. to lose complete contact with you and and our contact our crew there when you guys would come on. That doesn't happen anymore. But you feel free to run this segment however you see fit. <laughs> <laughs> that's classic. Uh, you know I I. I I'll tell you what, Robbie, I, I agree with you. And let's let's talk about that Santa Barbara one just a little bit further yeah, in Hawaii. It's early in the season, and we talked about, uh, or you were mentioning about, you know, how Irvine uh, was getting blown out, Barney, and that's what you, I believe your correct words were, was, you know, they're, they're down and out and they're done for the season. <laughs> Obviously, it's, it's very 
It's, yeah, it's over. They're over with. I, it's so early in the season still, but um, I think I called it last week when I said Santa Barbara was going to beat Hawaii, and I'm telling you what right now, when you look at the MPSF, and you look at the bottom five teams, you've got Irvine, Stanford, Baptist, Pacific, and UC San Diego. Now, granted, I think Pacific and UC San Diego are out for good. Uh, but you look at Hawaii, and Hawaii's got Northridge coming up here uh, next weekend. And, you know, when you start to get some momentum swinging in your direction, that can help out a little bit down the line. And, and I'm not sure... Uh, whether or not Northridge or, or Hawaii is going to pull it out in the end. But that's going to be a crucial weekend for, either, for both those teams. And I'm, I'm interested to see also Irvine and Stanford. Those are two teams that are right there on the cusp of one of them being left at home later on in the year. So uh, those matches for me are going to be ones that I'm going to keep an eye on. Now let me talk about a little of the other ones out, we, out uh, east, and then I'll let uh, Robbie talk about the ones out west. I'm going to be looking at... Uh, Ohio State and us, we are playing this Wednesday night. Uh, Ohio State's coming into our house. There's a little snow going on right now in the Midwest and the East Coast. It might be a little bit tough travel, uh, but that's always a fun match to be a part of. I'm going to be looking at Princeton and Ball State. Uh, Princeton now, you know, they've gone out every year in the beginning in January, and they play West Coast teams, and they never have a practice pretty much before they play any of those matches. So now that they're going to have a week or so of practices at home, they're going to play against a pretty good Ball State team. I'm going to be watching that one. Uh, Battle of the Midwest top teams, uh, Lewis and Loyola, I'm going to be watching. I'm going to see who's going to pick up that one. Lewis has always, you know, had a little bit of a thing about beating Loyola, and this could be one of those matches that maybe kind of upsets a little bit here. I, I'm, I'm going to call Loyola winning this one in four, but don't be surprised if Lewis wins it. Uh, well, I am also going to be watching. For those that don't know, sorry, Jay, it's a regional rivalry. Folks that don't realize that Lewis and Loyola, Chicago, only about 45 minutes apart. Maybe an hour. And I that's true, and I do believe that Vinny Lopes would have this one as one of the top ten matches in the city of Romeoville every year. So you never know. It could be, it could be a, a battle barn burner there. I'm going to be watching USC and UCLA. That's going to be a great match as always. And I'm going to be watching Hawaii and CSUN. Those two right there, UCLA and Pepperdine obviously is, is a good one, and I'm sure Robbie will talk about that, so I'll leave that one for him. But I'm going to be watching Hawaii and CSUN. I want to see which one of those teams can pull it off. So those are the matches I'm going to watch this week. What do you got, Robbie? Well, a little segue there. You know, the Hawaii CSUN, you know, you, you mentioned some key points there, but the guy that's really rising up for Northridge that I think is going to be the X Factor is going to be Damani Lenore, their opposite, who's just kind of come out of nowhere two weeks ago and just started getting these phenomenal numbers at the right side. So I, that's going to be, I think, if he gets going again, Hawaii's going to go down twice. I mean, it, it's hard in the MPSF to knock a team down twice, but he's been playing extremely well. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, as far as the matches of the week, you know, I'm surprised I didn't pick UCLA at Pepperdine. That is uh, the number one, number three this week, and uh, it's not going to be on Pac-12 Network. <laughs> but hey, well, it will be at Pepperdine. <laughs> I, actually did, I actually did pick that one as one of the top ones, but I wanted you to talk about that since that's your backyard. Gotcha. Well, here you go. <laughs> so, you know, after seeing UCLA play twice this week and talking to some of the coaching staff, you know, there is one thing that is separating UCLA, although they – I don't think they're the, the, the most talented team right now. They are mentally prepared to, to gut it out this season to win it because their mindset is, you know what, this is a chance. We've got to grasp this. We're a top team, and um, they, we talked about the four pillars a few weeks ago. Actually, last two weeks in a row now, that, that's Frost been teaching. And you can see that the, the um, family aspect beginning to come together. They are actually 
<clears throat> you know, at the San Diego match, I think it was on Thursday, they were saying that the team went on their own to do their visualization exercises before the match, a match that, you know, they're going to win pretty handily. But they are so focused on winning now that they're going to be a tough team to stop. Um, you know, throwing the fact that they have a seven-foot outside and Robert Page, and watching the court and, and his shots this, this last week, he hits a sharp angle four-to-four shot or an extreme angle shot that you know, I was surprised he hit as hard as he did and by a triple block, and he consistently hit that spot really hard and is hard to defend. So you got him in a fast Gonzalo Quiroga outside set, left side, and you know he's just so quick and so uh, smart on his uh, attack that uh, they, are, they are very potent right now. Now, granted, you've got... Josh Taylor now, a big 6'9 for Pep, and you've got Matt West, a, a talented setter, and I think this is going to be a five-set match that will be the match to watch. It's the only match on, on Wednesday, but I believe it will probably be the best match of the week because um, these teams are going to go at it. You've got Sparrow against Dunphy. You've got <clears throat> these big hitters on each of the pins and uh, some great defense being played by Pepperdine right now too. So uh, it could be an exciting, exciting long night on Wednesday. Well, I'm going to be doing UC Irvine at Stanford, that match happening on Saturday, and then I'll be doing UCLA at USC on Sunday. Both of those will be available on Pac-12 Network if you get it. Yeah, the number one versus number three does not end up on air, but that's just the way it happens, Robbie. But Pepperdine's free, free feed, right? <laughs> I guess. I don't know. They have students who, who do the broadcast or something. I think uh, that's one of the things we'll talk with Tom Fuhr here in a couple minutes is the the proliferation of opportunity to watch volleyball matches and to see volleyball in the new media universe is an interesting one. So there you go, guys. Uh, thanks for the, the full recap there, Jay. We expect yep. the bell next week, and, uh, and I'll know who you played. I'll know that you played OSU. Well, listen, <laughs> I'll tell you what. Next week it will be on. <laughs> is that the bellhop you're calling for? That's a little bell. <laughs> All right, time for Jay to check in and for you guys to check out. Thanks a lot, boys. Appreciate it. Have a good See one, you boys. boys. All right, College Ball Weekly comes to an end. We'll take a short break here on the Net Live. We'll be right back with more Tom Fuhrer. We've got about 20 more minutes to spend with him and uh, glean all the knowledge that we can. Get your questions up on the chat board if you have something you want to know from Tom. The Net Live, back in a second.
Sing it, Bruno. Is Bruno bigger now? Was that a good stage for him? I thought it was one of the best Super Bowl performances I've ever seen. Whoa. I was good. Well, you're I'm even a Bruno Mars fan, and I thought it was good. You're entitled to your opinion. Oh, you didn't like it? No, I, that's not the case at all whatsoever. No, I think it was good. Uh, I think it's hard for, because TV is two-dimensional, and music is meant to be absorbed at three-dimensional, so it's hard for it to really come across TV-wise. Does that make sense? Sure. Um, do you see colors when you hear music? I, there are people that do. When I really listen to music, I close my eyes and listen to it. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. And, seen, and with headphones on. You ever seen uh, The Last Dragon? You yes. To, you get to see the glow? Yes. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I thought, I mean, I thought he did a good job. I thought the halftime performance was great. I liked his drum solo at the beginning. Mm-hmm. That was entertaining for me. I really liked that. Um, he's an entertainer. I, I like Bruno Mars. Don't get me wrong. And I even like the Red Hot Chili Peppers part. I didn't understand why they were there. <laughs> like, it didn't seem, I feel like, and this is just me guessing here, that NFL or TV execs or whatever thought that maybe Bruno Mars' name wasn't as big as they thought it was. So they're like, oh, we need to put somebody else in there, too, to draw some attention to it. But I thought it was fine. I think you're right about that. So why they brought in yeah. the Chili Peppers? Yeah. yeah. Chili Peppers, are, I don't know, they're old, but, man, Flea is buffed out. Anthony Kiedis still, I don't think he owns a shirt. No, never worn a shirt to perform in his life, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, one of the things I wonder uh, with, with volleyball, can it be made rule-wise somehow more compelling on television? I mean, I, I kind of give my own little anti-paddles thing here early on in the show, but is there something that can be done to make it better on TV? Well, that's a loaded question, but I think um, uh, the idea of shrinking the court originally on the beach side was to create longer rallies. Yeah. And I do think that that, um, like my wife just thinks pass, set, hit, that's all volleyball is. And um, something that brings a little bit more uh, nuance to the game, I think would help. And um, I'm not sure what that would be. Because shrinking the court just made it a, a much more big man's game. Yeah. Uh, then and it didn't increase rallies, especially on the men's side. I feel like the men are still siding out at a pretty good clip. Exactly. There may be a few more rallies on the women's side, but the men is pretty much bumps that spike. And it's that way on the first play and the last play, which I've said here. There's no, no strategy to it. I was right. saying that to somebody last night. Like in the NFL, just think of the amount of knowledge and strategy that the common fan knows about. Do you call a timeout? Do you go for it on fourth down? Do you try a fake punt? Uh, what do you do here? You know, do you try and draw them off sides so you can get five more yards? There's so many things you can do where volleyball lacks that type of depth of opportunity inside of individual plays. Well, and I, I think you know, certainly bringing up the strategy of who do you serve and how do you serve them, but that's only one part of the game. Um, you know, blocking technique and this and that is probably a little too technical for the average Joe to understand. Hard to show because you're talking about millimeters, not positions of players. Correct. Uh, so uh, at a certain point in time, you have to just say this is the game. Yeah. And, um, and try to, I think the bigger, bigger issue is really building the personalities than it is changing the rules of the game. Uh, anything that would help rallies... Um, I think would be helpful. I mean, it, it, actually, the short court did kind of get rid to a degree of a lot of jump serving, and uh, so that was probably better uh, that that there wasn't. Uh, I, m- I remember one time watching Jose Loyola and Adam Johnson play, and they had 12 or 13 jump serves that they bombed, 
and uh, that wasn't a very entertaining match either. Yeah. So um, I think you, I think the rule changes and things of that nature. I mean, the ball is another thing that people always talk about. I think the more you can allow people to handset and loosen up the rules there, but I, I don't believe in overhead passing like they have indoors. I just don't. What? For the beach. My whole career was based on that, Tom. Couldn't, couldn't have played that. outside hitter. I hate that, but I do think you can loosen up the uh, hand-setting uh, rules to make it more entertaining. Uh, just going back to Dana Camacho for a second, because I'm on a tangent with Apparently him. he's your favorite player, too. That's but, what we uh, learned today. But his, the Marlboro his, Man. Yeah. His, uh, Marlboro Man. His, uh, just watching a, a ball come off his hands is just a beautiful thing, and I think it's the most beautiful aspect of the sport is the handset. Mm-hmm. And so you'd like to see a lot more of that. Um, so anything that could loosen up the rules there, uh, and ha- anything that has more rallies in it. But I don't. I think when you skew to so many big men, again from a marketing perspective, people can't really identify with the big guy as much as they can with the smaller guy. For the marketing side of things, I, I want you to speak about the possibility of Olympic trials, and what that means television-wise for the sport of beach volleyball. I think it's critically important. Okay. And. Um, I don't think it was done the right way last time, uh, not talking about 1996. I'm talking about when all of a sudden at the 11th hour they wanted to get Misty and Kerry and, and uh, Dalhauser and Rogers to qualify. No, you have to set that up four years ahead of yeah. time to let everybody know. Correct. But I think the Olympic trials would be a big, um, a big boon to television. I guess the question is there are some folks that want to have one automatic spot uh, go so that you don't lose a Misty or a Kerry. And then the other factor is if you take two teams and the two teams make the final it's almost anticlimactic the final and the final can't be anticlimactic in an olympic trials right so right, I, where they're already both in there are norseka events like that where you have two teams qualifying and they get to the finals and there's nothing really on the line it, it has to have something on the line and if you say well guarantee one team and then have uh, the other two teams play off for it, then you're all of a sudden having an Olympic trial where your top team isn't playing yeah. in the final. So that doesn't make sense either. Is there too much risk? Is there a Dan and Dave risk in that? Is there it... always is. I mean, track and field goes through this all the time. Swimming, too. Yeah. Do they not? But, true. It, there's a drama associated with that. And, and who's to say that if Misty and Carrie did for, or, you know, Carrie and April were to somehow lose in the Olympic trials, who's to say they wouldn't lose in the Olympic Games? Uh, a lot of it is people say, oh, there should be automatic bursts because there's no way we should not send these folks. But if they can't do it at the trials, they may not have been able to do it at the Games either. That's something you never know. If there are, what are there, two spots for the Americans? Yes. There are two spots, and you can't win one of those two spots because they always say, well, what if we have an off day? Well, if you lose two matches in the trials... I don't have a lot of a lot of sorrow in my heart for you if you blow two matches in, in this biggest event to the Olympics of your career or of that four years. If you blow one, you can still be in. Well, the other thing I would, uh, in, in terms of the trials, I would really uh, blow it out in the sense of inviting a number of, of people to play. Because when you can say, I've played in the U.S. Olympic Beach Volleyball Trials, I'd invite double A's, single A's, triple A's. I would have uh, the number of teams they have at the Olympic Games. So your top 24 USA teams, I'd put them in pools like they do at the uh, Olympic Games. What you have to do in a trials is replicate the format of the Olympic Games. And if you've got a double A AA or a triple A player that, that's amongst the top 24 teams, and you can have a separate 
qualification to get into the Olympic trials, all of a sudden now you've got a series of events that can help market the sport, that can help grow the sport, and then you set up a format that's very similar to the Olympic Games, and then there's you can lose three times and still make the Olympic team. There's something you can sell to NBC, but I respectfully disagree with a AAA team ranked 24th playing in the Olympic trials, I think. Just the way that it's set up right now, unless you are already playing international FIVB events, you should not be allowed to play in the Olympic trials. We don't have, have enough very, teams. Yeah, playing. you don't have enough teams. And um, then, then that could be talked about, too. I just don't think that there was that argument with Sean, Scott, and John Hyden right. being one of the best domestic right. teams, which they were. Yeah. But the couple times they played internationally, they got absolutely destroyed. So you want to send your best team to the Olympics. They were not going to be the best team at the Olympics for Here, us. Here's a problem, because... You look at Phil and Todd's, or pardon me, Phil and Todd, uh, Phil and Rosie's season last year. One of the main reasons I think it's viewed as a failure or not, it's not perceived correctly. Yeah, they win three FIVB events. People don't realize that because here in the States, they lost to a guy who came off the couch who has been coaching for the last three months, not playing, practices twice, goes out, renews with his old partner who hasn't been having any, any sustained success with partnerships or anything. And they go out and lose to him. I think that's, that's why th- that view is out there. Now, it sets up for that kind of opportunity. So if you have Olympic trials and Furbringer and Jennings decide, oh, we want to try and get in the trials, they get in the trials and they beat the number one team. Well, if you're the number one team, you can't dump it to a guy who's coming out of uh, standing around three hours a day and doing office work the other six. True. So that's good for the Olympic trials. You can't tri- do that. That's good for the trials. And then let's say they make the Olympics and go uno dos, or they make it. You apparently they're capable of beating the number the team that has won the most FIVB tournaments in the world. They're going to have some level. They beat them twice in that tournament, did they not? I, I also yes, they did actually. So, yeah, you're right. But, come on, but, you're right. But, but there's also another point, and and it may be a subtle one, but they weren't using the FIVB ball, and they weren't playing, you know, with with respect to FIVB protocols. And I think at the Olympic trials, you have to use the FIVB Correct. ball, and you have to play according to FIVB yes. protocols. Okay. Yeah. And I think that uh, I mean, think about it in your in your own way. If you've been using a certain ball uh, oh, internationally, and then and then you're playing with a completely I mean, there's a lot of at that That's level. It's a huge factor. It's a huge factor at that level. Yeah. And um, so I think that risk is a minimal risk, and. Uh, in, in track and field, for instance, you have people that finish in the top three that haven't met the Olympic qualifying standard. Then the next group gets bumped up. The next uh, individual gets bumped up if they have met that qualifying mm. standard. So what USA Volleyball can do is here is the qualifying standard. They st- track and field still allows these people to because they have met a minimum standard to get into the trials. But in order to represent the U.S. at the Olympic Games, you have to have met these particular uh, standards, okay? But what we're trying to do here is replicate the format of the Olympic Games, which is a very different format than a typical tournament. Correct. Okay, and one of the biggest, most agonizing parts about the Olympic format is you're playing every other day. One match every other day, and that takes a certain mental makeup. Yeah, and if you not have a physical a, toll, but a mental, mental makeup. Yeah. Mental makeup. And if you have a whole week's worth of trials, uh, men and women, now you've got two weeks' worth of promotion, two weeks' worth of drama, two weeks' worth of stories, yep, two I weeks' agree. worth of sponsorship, all of that that comes into fruition. 
And if somebody can't make it this weekend, they can make it that weekend. If somebody can't make it during the weekend, they can go during the week. And it becomes a spectacle. I'd throw a beach pole vault out there. I'd have bands out there. I think that you have to – I think this could be the, one of the greatest opportunities for beach volleyball in the history of this country is to have these Olympic trials. I like how he sneaks the track reference in there. You didn't even notice. Beach pole vault. Yeah. Never even heard of it. You know what I think we ought to do? I think we ought to get Apollo Ono to cross over. You know, we've got Lolo Jones going that way. We'll get Apollo and to start Lauren playing Williams. defense. And Lauren Williams. And Lauren Williams will probably do better than Lolo Jones at the Olympic bobsled. Oh, another track and field yeah. athlete being yeah. a pusher. Yeah. yeah. Uh, first, fairly specialized thing, though. We've seen Herschel Walker do that before. Yes. Where you've got to like, push something very quickly, and then you just hold on. And then you jump in. And then you break it. I've got the yeah, hold yeah. on part. I can pull the brake. It's the push really fast yeah. part that I just can't do. Well, I don't think they make bobsleds big enough for you. But I'm going to curl. I can get in curling. You, we need I don't to have care Paul what ba- Paul says. We need to have Paul Baxter back on the show. I don't care what Paul says. I can put the, stone in, the, I can put the stone in the circle. No, There's no question. not going to happen. Uh, Tom, question about the, the on-demand uh, a la carte world of entertainment today uh-huh. not just sports but it's everything that i mean my kids expect to be able to rewind everything first of all <laughs> expect to be able to watch anything anytime they want and that goes for me too yeah. i get used to it i i don't like having to be dictated a certain time for something i still love live football and live basketball and live sports but when it comes to most anything else i want to be able to watch it when i want to watch it if i'm not going to commit to sitting down at 10 o'clock on sunday um, which I love, by the way, about the West Coast. <laughs> Not having to wait for football is one of the best things ever. Uh, but on demand and, and its effect on TV in general, but also volleyball, how do you see that playing out from where you sit right now? Uh, I think it's got a good future. Um, you know, one thing you say you, you want to be able to see it and see it now, but the Grammy Awards are, were on tape delay on the West Coast. Which drives me crazy. So uh, I, I think uh, one of the things that volleyball can do is um, utilize the Internet more in, as a me- method of, of transmission. Um, I think there should be at least one or two lipstick-type cameras where you can see the outer court matches. Yep. Uh, I think that would be beneficial. I think you should have um, like a quad screen that you can click on any one of four matches. Prep at, zone. At a, exactly. Exactly. And, and, Kevin, to that point, a hosted screen in the middle, like the one you do. Uh, My high school football program, for those that yeah, don't you're know. Saying. Yeah, you're saying. Now, with the scores, are the scores on the other um, courts? Are yeah, you can, yeah, scores yeah. and commentators. Yeah. Yep, yeah. you can you can make it work whatever you. But but I think um, I know that I would I would absolutely go to that on Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, for tournaments in Cincinnati, I would get in front of my computer and start just like being a regular fan. Court yeah. one, court two, court three, court four, see where the action is. That's something that's very inexpensive that um, that I would invest in for volleyball here. What do, what do you think the, the costs are? You mean you say inexpensive, but the, everything's relative. What does mm-hmm. that mean? What do you think the budget would look like? I think uh, you could do something like that for uh, probably uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 5000 to 6000 a day. Wow. Yeah, so it's relatively inexpensive. That's not buying me. Well, that's no, that's not going to buy you. You're an indoor, <laughs> you're an indoor guy anyway. Kevin, hey, hey, I've he, commentated he beach. Did, he did a beach no, tournament. No, no, no. He did a no, beach, and he did a ver- very nice job. Actually. I did Jose Cuervo the year before, too. Oh, I, I, I know beach that. players like my commentary. I've had comments not, not on players. The sh- not on the show, though. Well, I play devil's advocate <laughs> on this program. I mean, I'm not really playing me. I'm somebody else. 
five or six thousand dollars. That's doable. Uh, Tom, I, I, we've had a lot of folks ask over the years about the AVP classics. Ah, yes. And and that you put together for those that don't know, put together Chris McGee as the host, and say the four guys who were involved in whatever particular match, except for Kent Steffes. Yes, Kent Steffes was Kent not was show. MIA. He's the he's the white whale. <laughs> yeah. Now we've had Kent Steffes call this program several times over the years. Uh, he's made our intro, in, in fact, many times. Uh, but yeah, you put together. A host, four players who were involved in a match, and you watch the match and you get commentary in between. Uh, where, what was the – who was the person who thought of that idea? How did it come together? And how did it fare as far as a piece of programming on TV? I thought of it, and what gave me the idea was the uh, Mystery Science Theater. Or, you know, where, 3,000. Right, where uh, uh, you would have some people comment, comment on a movie and, and everything of that nature. And so – uh, I thought it would be interesting to do the same thing because people always harken back to uh, different eras in beach volleyball and different matches. And we also, I was able to go to the USOC and get the Olympic um, match from 1996, the gold medal match, which, mm-hmm. was, which was helpful. It was very well received within the volleyball community, almost like a cult classic. Mm-hmm. It didn't really generate a lot of ratings out, you know, uh, amongst the uh, average fan, but I know that I got more comments from that than probably any direct comments than yeah. just about anything else we did. Because nobody's going to really comment on a Laker game you did, unless it's something unique or unusual. And uh, they did for, for uh, the Bollywood Knights. And um, uh, it, was, uh, it was a labor of love, trust me. Very cool. I, I thought it was a cool type thing. Uh, Jeremy and I have been talking about a, a very similar Mystery Science Theater type thing. Based off a motocross mm-hmm. thing, of course. Drink. That's just how it works here. Tom, uh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I, um, I don't remember what year it was now because it all blurs together. It's probably the end of last year, I made a comment on this show. And before I finished my comment, people hated me. But I said that beach volleyball was in the quote-unquote death rattle phase. And then basically went on to say, unless something changes. Because I feel like we keep doing the same things over and over again. Um, relying just on sponsors, and that's why it keeps going into um, bankruptcy or just fails for whatever other reasons. Do you, are you concerned about the sport as well, or do you feel like it can sustain and have a viable future? I'm very concerned about the sport, and that's why um, I really want to make sure that the overhead costs are kept low. Because if you can keep those staging costs and the time buys and all that other stuff that you just don't, can't do, um, then I think if you keep your overhead down, you have a chance. Because, look, back in 1976, 77, 78, uh, when Parks and Recs were running, there were 13, 14 tournaments every year, okay? And that was with no money, no nothing. Uh, I think we've evolved since then, but sometimes you over-evolve and try to mimic other sports, and that's not what we need to do here. We can't mimic other sports. Just because we see success in this one endeavor, we have to remember what made beach volleyball successful. It was access to the players. It was a lifestyle. And then when it became big and grotesque is the word I want to use with all of the staging and the stands, we got away from what made us unique. We got away from our core. So I am bullish but I also think we need to build more heroes. You're right. Karch and Sinjin aren't here. So we need the one named individuals. Try, you know, try is an easy name to remember, right? Try born or whatever the case may be. 
um, you need to have heroes. And that's why, on a certain sense, the Carrie Misty thing worked out, because Carrie Misty, Carrie Misty, people know who they are. If we can develop heroes, if we can keep our infrastructure and overhead costs down, and we have that meeting of the minds like I'd like to have, where we get everybody that has a significant role in beach volleyball in a room, then yes, I am bullish for the future. Let's bring into the conversation someone we mentioned earlier. It's been forwarding emails that are pretty hilarious. He's in a full panic all of a sudden. Read pretty. Welcome in. How you doing, gentlemen? I, I too, am bullish for the future. Uh, there's no doubt about it, but it does not involve about, oh. Apollo Ono. I'm going to say that right now. I <laughs> <laughs> <He> hate that. <laughs> there's a little little history there, a little feud between Mr. Pretty and Mr. Ono. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to go there, but but he is not in beach volleyball's future. I'm just going to go ahead and say that right now. <laughs> well, welcome in, Reed. You've been listening to this conversation between us and uh, Tom Fuhrer, longtime TV executive. Any uh, thoughts? Or, uh, or directions I, you I, want to take it for a second. I love, I love the number, the overhead number of a daily production cost to uh, stream online 5K. I feel like, uh, I feel like that's doable. And, and Tom, you know, I've always thought that the way to cover beach volleyball is to, to not just uh, show a semifinal and final, but to show, uh, almost mimic and mirror what the uh, PGA Tour does. And you basically get a Wednesday through Sunday version Step by step interviews, uh, highlights, as well as real time play. Um, do you think that's something that that would work in a uh, in a beach volleyball format? That's a little expensive, but I think um, uh, here, here. Let me give you an example. In 2005, I was in Cincinnati in Mason, and I saw you and and Adam Johnson playing together. And it was very interesting to me because I knew you were a national team guy, and just to have one camera. Uh, behind the baseline so that I could click on you and Adam playing whomever. And if I had a, uh, an announcer that kind of uh, knew a little bit about what it was, that's a start, read. And I think that um, that's what we need right now. We have, to, we have to set ourselves small hurdles, small goals, and then build from there. But I love your idea the Wednesday through Sunday or Thursday through Sunday. Let's start it. It, it, right away on the on the on the Thursday and and seeing some of the guys in qualifying. I mean, Kevin Cleary and whomever he's playing with and qualifying at the Manhattan Beach Open is a story. Yep. When Fenoy Moana, not Fenoy, uh, when Akatubi and Frohoff were playing in Manhattan, that was a story. And I know those are the older players, but there's going to be young players, 16-year-old hawk catcher type people that you'll want to see on a Thursday. And uh, so I love that idea. And again, we're talking about very very low costs. I like that. I also thought that relative to the Olympic trials, you know, on the show, we, we continually talk about the opportunity that is there, but you also have to balance it with being fair and picking or having the right teams have the right opportunity. I, I wonder if USAV could almost um, leverage their relationships and sponsors to try to get more FIVB events in North America or in the North Seca zone or Canada or, or somehow have an initiative that would enable more teams that maybe don't have the travel um, budget uh, to get that international experience. That could be a way that could bridge the gap between the guys and girls who are making this a profession, which, let's be honest, it's maybe a dozen total, both genders, uh, and maybe spread the opportunity around by having those tournaments closer, closer to home. 
And, and I think the, the issue there is the Ari Graca with uh, USAV and the U.S. volleyball community. We should be romancing Ari Graca uh, because you're right. We need another, at least another tournament here in the U.S. and preferably one in Canada. I mean, Canada's had a couple tournaments over the years. In fact, there was a tournament in Montreal where we went one, two, three a couple years ago. Not a lot of teams played, of course, because European teams didn't want to come over and play. Um, but so what? Their loss. Yep. Uh, you know, some of our guys don't necessarily want to go over to Asia to play. But um, I think to have at least two tournaments, and I would say back-to-back weeks, so there's not a lot of transportation costs, it incentivizes people to come to the United States and Canada. There should be a three-tournament, uh, one in Canada, two in the United States, on three consecutive weekends. So it makes sense from a financial standpoint. And I think, Reed, that it is very important to make the FIVB realize how important it is to have events in the U.S. because ultimately it's going to help their sponsorship activity and activation as well. Reader, thanks for calling. We've got to get Tom out of here. All right, get Tom out of there and, and deal with that piece of mail that somehow is in my desk. I'm, I'm uh, cleaning out my uh, office right now. I don't know if it's even possible for us to uh, to post that, that color drawing, that Texas troll I <laughs> uh, made, and you he told me that it was in reverse, but I guarantee you that I did not scan that in reverse, and <laughs> I, I'm a little bit nervous that the envelope might be laced with something and that my family's in danger. <laughs> be that as it may, that piece of mail is, is in my office. It, it, ha- it has no address, so I don't, I don't know if he drove to my house and dropped it off. I don't know how it ended up here, but I have two gift cards for you guys and a lovely heat piece of hate mail from texas troll for you kevin with the love hate envelope we just got i wonder if that envelope like was it addressed with letters individually cut out of magazines that didn't match (laughs) like uh, like beverly hills cop 2 or something i mean (laughs) it's it's even scarier than that it just says kevin and jeremy and somehow it's in my house and it's not even even sealed it has like the peel and seal uh sticker so yeah all right make sure that those post post at your discretion Make sure those gift certificates for Jamba Juice make it this way, though, because I, I will use one of those. Very <laughs> <laughs> okay. right, good, guys. Thanks, Appreciate it. In. Talk to you later. All right. See you. Uh, Read pretty, checking in, checking out. And, Tom Fuhr, before we let you go here, uh, I just I had to cover ground on what the heck was Quokka Sports. Yes. Never, never heard of it? It was uh, – we did the first ever Olympic website, NBCOlympics.com in 2000, okay. and uh, it was one of the most gratifying experiences I ever had. I – worked with so many incredibly gifted internet uh, designers. Uh, I think we were way ahead of our time uh, during that ride. And um, that was kind of my internet left turn after I left Nike. And and as I say, I wish the company was still uh, in business because I really felt the product that we turned out was... was, uh, I don't think I've ever worked with a group as creative as that group in in, uh, 99 through 2001. Ahead of its time, perhaps. Ahead of its time. All right. And then for you, uh, we mentioned that you were with Fox Sports West uh, for more than 11 years. You just concluded your run there. And what's in your future? Well, immediately I'm going to Stanford, Connecticut tomorrow to work on the Olympic Games from uh, stateside and not in Sochi. And then I don't know, but I will say this, that um, I would love to, uh, at some point in my career, and I'm getting old now, I would love to give back to the sport of beach volleyball. So at some point, if it ever came to fruition, I would love to be involved in the sport on some sort of level. 
Well, we've got a great feel during this last couple of hours for your knowledge and your fandom of the sport. Uh, you're one of those people that is a true fan. And thanks for spending a couple of, of, your, of hours of your time with us here in the home court. Thank you. And, uh, and tolerating our inside jokes and ridiculous humor. And uh, Jeremy, we'll talk, we'll talk about your racing experience next week. We'll yeah, we can hold on. Hang on. I'll, I'll post that looked like photos. Irwindale. Is that Irwindale? It was Irwindale. Yeah, you're in yep. the Toyota Challenge or whatever it was. I think sure. Toyota runs that. Yeah, yeah. Was that a Groupon? No. Oh, you it was just, a birthday gift that I got about two years ago that I hadn't used as of yet. And now when, when you, you want to be a stock car driver, don't you? I got passed once. What? In the first few laps. Okay. And then after that, I passed everybody. Like four, four of us on the track. We'll hear more about Jeremy's uh, Kill Yarbrough days that are going to come up here. He has to learn who Kill Yarbrough is first, but then, then he'll be on board. Thanks for being on board here with The Net Live. We appreciate you listening. If you're getting this podcast during the week, enjoying that, email us, thenetlive at gmail.com. If you have anything to say, comments on today's great show with Tom Fuhrer. Thanks to Rob and Jay for being a part of the show, and thanks to you, the listener. We'll see you next week with more Net Live. She won't believe me And it's so, it's so sad to think that she